Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. I am the mistress of the middle, Manila Chan. I'm not sure if that's sticking, though, Jamaral. I'm going to... Let me that tweak out. that one. Yeah. No worries. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas. And Chan. And Chan. It's like, I don't know if that one works. Yeah. We're Oops. still, we're, we're field testing it. Yeah, that's what it is. We're field testing we're it. Field te- we'll try it this week. Maybe next week it'll be. Because you might be over the weekend. You might be like, you know what? Mistress in the middle, that's not strong enough. Like, it's it all you. That's like your wrong. spot to be. Can we um, perceive like home wrecker? I mean, it depends on how you define mistress, right? I mean, mistress could just be like a power position. Well, in our generation, mm-hmm. there was Elvira, yes. mistress of the dark. Oh, see, they don't know who she is. I don't know if right. the audience knows who she is. Well, maybe the audience knows because this was she's a while an, ago. She's an icon. Yeah, she is. I mean, that was the one with the what all black the hair. hair. Yeah, she had this kind of goth look before yes, goth became like a thing. Vampiress. Yeah. Look. Yeah. It's very sultry. Power position. But she was like... You know, it was, it was a, obviously it was a joke character. Yeah. But it's awesome. Yes. Very awesome. Not to mention the mistress thing in and of itself. I mean, it depends how you look at mistress, right? There's the homewrecker mistress. <laughs> There's the, I'm going to tie you up and step on your, you know what, mistress. Oh, my. Um, yeah. So it depends on what you mean by mistress in regards to how powerful the position is, um, whether it's more goth or whether it's less so. But it's, that's like, I think because when I started, I was like, precipitously perched is so pretentious. It's like radically pretentious. And every oh, time I God. say it, I laugh sometimes <laughs> what I'm saying. And I'm like, God, man, this is so pretentious. But it's up to you, right? It's up to, it's like your moment of individuality where you could just kind of give the snapshot of personality. That's the way I look at it. Give, give yourself a tagline. Like, nobody told me that. Yeah. Well, I told you when we first came, I was like, all right, you're going to have the opening or something. I'm like five minutes. <laughs> it's like, all right, in three minutes. Do you need to have a tagline? What? What? I was like, wait, what? Huh? <laughs> but no, it's up to you. It's like, it could be pretty much whatever you want, as long as there's no cursing. Yeah, no <laughs> cursing. And nothing on this page. But beyond that, all yours. We'll field test. We'll we'll ask the peanut gallery yeah. out there. What what goes with Manila? Yeah. Don't say vanilla. Thrilla. And gorilla. Thrilla, the Thrilla in Manila. Thrilla for I mean, Manila. And that's even going further back, yes, right? Ali. Muhammad Ali. Yep. Ali versus Foreman. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to steal that from him. He's not going to care. I tr- promise you. His his memory. I promise you. I know, we're going to get a lot of fight fans <laughs> out there. <laughs> well, let's go to headlines. All right, let's let's do this. I'm I'm going to take a a, a go mm-hmm. at, at the headlines today because we've got some breaking news that I've followed for years. Yes, same here. And it is tragic to put it mildly. I mean, this has been what eight years at this point that's been going on where they've been basically torturing the guy in front of the public. Well, we're talking about Julian Assange, of course. Um, so we can go as far back as when he was holed up at the Ecuadorian embassy, mm-hmm. uh, all the way to, you know, the past year and a half or so that he's been holed up at, or not holed up, they, they've shoehorned him into Belmarsh prison. Um, so that is the news right now. A London court has made a formal decision to extradite Julian Assange to the United States. The final decision, though, awaits the UK government to vote on that. WikiLeaks tweeted that the defense team has until the 18th of May to challenge that decision 
before Home Secretary Preeti Patel makes her decision on that ruling. Should he be extradited here to the U.S.? Uh, We know that he's accused of espionage. Assange faces up to 175 years behind bars when you tally up all the charges against him. 175 years. So that's that's tantamount to basically a life sentence. And then COVID. You guys were all celebrating that you can hop on airplanes without a mask. But now the Biden administration said Tuesday night they will likely appeal that court decision by the Florida federal judge to end the COVID-19-related mask mandates on public transit. The DOJ says they disagree with the district court's decision and will appeal. And that is all subject to the CDC's conclusion that the order remains necessary for public health. Now, on the national landscape on Tuesday, the U.S. Department of Education announced major changes to its student loan repayment programs designed to address what they describe as long-standing failures. You don't say. The program will provide immediate forgiveness for some 40,000 borrowers and give another 3.6 million borrowers at least three years of additional credit towards income-driven repayment forgiveness, which can take a total of 20 to 25 years. As of right now, student loans are the only loans that can literally follow you to your grave and beyond. So 20, 25 years-ish, I guess not too bad. Uh, Then Mexico quietly disbanded the elite special anti-narcotics unit that used to work with the DEA. They did for the past 25 years at least, according to the reports by Reuters. The DEA has informed the unit's disbanding uh, back in April 2021, but they haven't really announced it publicly. So I find that kind of weird. The United States lacks the capability to reliably track the array of weapons being sent by the Biden administration to Ukraine. That is according to CNN's initial reports. Citing sources briefed on U.S. intelligence, quote, We have fidelity for a short time, but when it enters the fog of war, we have almost zero, says the source. It basically drops into a big black hole and you have almost no sense of it after a short period of time. Now, that that is almost as weird as, you know, the trillions of dollars that go missing yeah. at the DOD. It's weird, right? I mean, you would think that they would want to keep track, but Ukraine has been going through weapons like water. I mean, yeah. and they're even at the point where NATO is basically saying we're running out of weapons. And so, like, you know... Germany's sending them some stuff Yeah, as of today. And the U.S. is also... They're upping the amount of heavy weaponry, howitzers and everything else. And the U.S. is even saying that they're going to... Training um, to Ukrainian forces. I mean, there are all sorts of questions with this. I mean, yeah. is the training... Is this something that's going to take place in Ukraine? Are they going to bring people into... They can't afford to ship them out. Don't say they're going to ship them out to, like... Poland or something to well, train. That's what, exactly. That's kind of my point, right? So the U.S. service members are going to have to be on the ground yeah. training in Ukraine. But you can't put American troops in the middle of a war. I think American troops are already there based well, on what Le Figaro is saying. But that might but they might, they might not be troops. Not they may in, just be trainers and right. that type of stuff. But and, I don't think in, in an official capacity. Right. right. So I, I don't think it's safe to send them no, there because the chances of the Russian military... 
hurting, even hurting. Yes. A an active U.S. Uh, military personnel that, that can strike, cause, kick up World War Three, folks. And I get the feeling that that these guys know that a the U.S. and British troops are there, don't acknowledge it, and for the most part just deal with the mercenary thing of saying, okay, well we have these foreign fighters who are coming into the country, et cetera. We're just going to pay attention to those. We're not going to bring up the other stuff. Right. But you're right. I mean, if anything happens where it becomes clear that an American service member right. in got official killed, capacity, right. That is a big deal. And it's like, how long is it going to take to train? I mean, on those weapons, when do they think they're going to get that well, training? they're going to fight for 10 more years, remember? There's that. There's that. There's that. <laughs> Zelensky, we're going to fight for 10 years. It's like, okay, buddy, you? you've been going through materials like water. Like, are, are you, bro? Yeah, I, I, don't, you? I don't see it. And not to mention, the fight is taking place now. There were 1,200 attacks overnight alone from Russia. And so it's like... That is massive. I don't yeah. think that's going to be 10 years, bro. Yeah. I, that may I, not be another two months, let alone 10 years. I hate, hate to break it to you. Yeah. Uh, let's move along with international news. The Chinese foreign ministry has promised to beef up bilateral cooperation with the Russian Federation on Tuesday in a statement issued following the meeting Monday between Chinese Vice Foreign Minister Li Yucheng and the Russian ambassador to China, Andrei Den- Denisov. Quote, no matter how the international situation changes, China will, as always, strengthen strategic coordination with Russia to achieve win-win cooperation, jointly safeguard the common interests of both sides, and promote the building of a new international relations and community with a shared future for mankind. That's directly from the statement. And after the start of the Russian operation there in Ukraine, the Biden administration wanted Saudi Arabia to produce more oil in order to damage the financial and military sectors of the Russian economy. Uh, According to a new report on Tuesday, Riyadh's commercial and political interests have been significantly altered after the Saudis became the biggest oil supplier now to China and stopped selling as much oil to the United States as they've been doing for the last few decades. So that relationship's kind of getting tweaked. Mm-hmm. Uh, very different than when Trump was in office. Uh, and Turkey has no intentions. This is obviously after they had a, a meeting with uh, Recep Erdogan uh, talking about Israel, as we discussed yester- yester- yeah. yesterday. Yesterday. Yesterday, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Now, Turkey says they have no intentions to infringe on Iraq's international, or excuse me, Iraq's territorial integrity. A little later one for that one, right? And and recently launched anti-terrorist operations. They're aiming only to ensure Turkey's border security. They say, well, you know, it's like one man's national security uh, defense is another man's, uh, their country's feeling like, well, you're being offensive to us. Yes. So, you know. Isn't it funny how that works? I mean, yeah. I mean, if we could regard other people's point of view a little bit better, this world would be a much better place. Well, there's that. But as we talked about, you give a little group a little too much power. Uh, So on Monday, Turkey initiated this cross-border, as they're calling it, anti-terrorist operation against the PKK in northern Iraq, saying the PKK uh, were planning some large-scale offensives of their own. So Ankara dispatched 42 task forces consisting of 654 soldiers to identify and, as they say, neutralize PKK militants in the border region. So, you know, neutralize is just a nice way of saying, take them out, take them out. And then tech, um, 
Oxford scientists have warned that a plan by NASA to broadcast Earth's location into outer space, that's just weird right there. Um, who are we telling where we are? We're, hey, it's Earth. We're right here. Isn't that an interesting question in the value? Right. So oh, I love that. What do they know? Right. It's it's a question of what do they know? Why is it that they want to make this an objective to broadcast like our coordinates? Yeah. And how do you have coordinates in space? Just saying. Like uh, you probably where where does it end? Where does it start? Like you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Like distance from the sun and those type of things. It's probably going to be a mathematical numbers. I guess. Like, I guess distance from the sun. Yeah. It's going to be here's the main sun with the third rock. This is the right, orbital of like, stuff. The, the pink yeah. building. Right. Yeah. With the old <laughs> right. man that hangs out in a rocking chair. Turn there. Yeah. It's like. That big fiery rock. Right. It's a, yeah, that or the that third ball planet. of fire. And it's like the third planet from the right. ball of fire. It's like you're going to see these things with um, rings around it. One of the <laughs> interesting things. Like, oh, I, I'll let that. you finish first. Yeah. Oh, but I just, I, look, I love that. You know, we sent that thing out once before with human, um, human genome, with music, all of that other stuff associated space. with it. Yeah. It was our way of sending it just in case something came across it. They can pick up the record. They can hear sounds of Earth. They can hear the languages. Weird. They can oh, hear yeah, all of the stuff. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I forgot. To me, it's like a I time capsule. It's a time capsule. Right, but I'd in love the space. Because it's like, it's oh, a statement really of values. Nice. It's like, yeah. even if you don't necessarily know anything is out there, it's hope. That's what it is. It's crystallized hope. Yes, I'm going with that. I like that. I want to shoot my own space time capsule yeah. out there. Can I do that? Of course you could do that. You just need billions of dollars. I, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, so NASA's doing this. They want to broadcast Earth's location to somebody, something. But it may prompt far-reaching consequences, including a possible alien invasion, <laughs> is what some people are saying. Now, Anders Sandberg, a senior research fellow at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. That sounds pretty cool told the Daily Telegraph that beaming information about the solar system, about Earth's surface, and humanity as such may pose a substantial risk. Now, I'm sure he's way more educated than you or I. I mean, you're you're a learned man, Jamarl, but... That guy's an expert. I mean, yeah. this dude's at Oxford. It's like 400 years old. There's a lot of education <laughs> he's there. like 400 years old. There's like a lot of education at Oxford. To be fair to him, just as a flat fact, since we don't know what's out there, I mean, by definition, he can't be wrong, right? I mean, yeah, well, But yeah. I would necessarily jump to the most I cynical... Mean, this is a Schrodinger's cat discussion. Exactly. Right? But he says it has such a high impact that you actually need to take it rather seriously. You should. And it's probably with a British accent, so it yeah. sounds very serious. So, uh, speaking <laughs> of science, Hubble may be coming towards the end of its life. Uh, the data it gathered over the decades... Uh, still paying dividends, NASA says. Uh, they've announced the discovery of a galaxy that may be the, quote, missing link between two early phases of the galaxy's lifespan. Dubbed GNZ7Q, astronomers believe the galaxy has a rapidly growing black hole at its center and may help explain how supermassive black holes which have the mass millions or billions times larger than our own sun, how they actually grow so quickly. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. They think this is a black hole at every center of every galaxy. Yeah. Including okay. our own. That's fascinating. Uh, business stuff. Netflix has suffered a disastrous 25.7% drop in shares after the company revealed they lost about 200,000 subscribers compared to the first quarter of 2021. 
after the streaming platform announced it was pulling out of the Russian market. It experienced a major customer outflow with at least 700,000 subscribers lost, resulting in the first drop in subscriber numbers since 2011. So that was a long time. Uh, the United States lacks the capability to... Well, we, no, we discussed that. Uh, billionaires, billionaire businessman Elon Musk looking to invest up to 15 billion bucks of his own money to delist Twitter from the New York Stock Exchange and take it private to pursue his aim of making this social media giant a model of free speech. That's according to the New York Post. And who told them? People in the know, unknown, un- unnamed, unknown people. Um, holidays, I think a lot of people out there celebrating 420, National Pot Smoker Day, weed, ganja, all of that stuff, 420. People waking up at 420, taking a break at 420 on 420. Uh, it's Banana Day, April 20th, 2022. Every third Wednesday in April. I didn't know that one. Uh, it's Chinese Language Day. Ni hao. Um, lima Bean Respect Day. Show some respect to the Lima Bean folks today. It's Lookalike Day. Hmm. Okay. And I can get with this one. National Cheddar Fries Day. I can get with some cheddar fries. <laughs> I mean, and it even dovetail very well with 420. That's true. Get that your, makes... Take your bond hits. And it's like, man, I need something to eat. Cheddar fry day. Cheddar fries. Two in one. Right there. Two birds, one stone. Uh, this day in history, 1902, Pierre and Marie Curie discovered the radioactive element known as radium. 1951, a human organ is surgically replaced for the first time. I did not realize it was only in 1951, an organ replacement? Yeah. Wow. Um, 1978, Soviet air defenses shoot down the Korean Airlines Flight 902. Oof. 1999, 15 people die in the Columbine High School Massacre. I remember that one. And 2010, the Deepwater Horizon oil, that rig, exploded. I remember that one, too. That was. These are all kind of big things yeah. that kind of shaped the world that we live in right now, like the Columbine stuff changed schools, number one. Because up to that point, I don't remember no. shootings. Yeah. No, no. It, the copycats that followed and, yeah, all the, the high school gun violence. The Deepwater Horizon rig, I mean, 2010, that was a massive spill. A lot of people died. Um, and that has really altered the way we drill for oil and, and the we had to make sub- substantive changes to... Um, that kind of deep water exploration. Um, so a lot of changes from this day in history. And that'll do it. That's your headlines for today. 420. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break. 420. It's, you know, it's funny. When I came in today, it was like, okay, let's have some fun around 420. And then I saw the link saying Julian Assange is I know. And at that point, it just sucks all the air out the room. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment with the monologue, the soapbox segment. Back shortly. Fault lines. Fault lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. So there are several things that are taking place on the ground. Apparently, according to Russia, there have been over 1,200 attacks overnight. You've had Moropol that seems to be on the brink of collapse, like literally so, with Russia giving a demand for the people surrender and giving time for them to come out with the battalion members basically not doing so, with Zelensky choosing to have those people basically die as opposed to lay their arms down in this kind of senseless, senseless siege at this point. They're surrounded. They're running out of food, water, munitions, et cetera. And yet, there they are, nonetheless, refusing the demand to surrender. And of course, there's supposed to be the second stage that has been opened up with this kind of massive front that has taken place in this battle for Donbass. Now, we've made the point before that the fighting has always been taking place in the East, but there was this kind of refocus or this repositioning where they basically went to accomplish that very specific objective of securing the Donbass republics. Now, Biden has decided, realizing that the weapon shipments that he's been sending has not been having the bang for the buck that they wanted. I mean, after all, they wanted Ukraine to fight to the last dead Ukrainian, but it seems as if this hasn't necessarily been working very well with all of the weapons being sent, running out or going into a black hole, as CNN was reporting earlier. You've had other reports that basically said NATO were running out of weapons, including the U.S., including Europe, and running down their stocks. Not everybody, not everyone, is content to kill Russians vicariously through the weapons that we are sending them, even with a total of $800 billion or several billion dollars in regards to the weapons that we're sending. Some of us, are so adamant about co-warriors, and some of us are so neoconish that living vicariously through the weapons is not enough. It's not the Brian Williams thing, the light of the weapons, blah, 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 blah. It's not that. It's not that. Enter Malcolm Nance. Enter Malcolm Nance. Now, Malcolm Nance is an MSNBC contributor. He is a talking fathead. And he typically gives this kind of trash military analysis, but he has decided, like I mentioned yesterday, that the military analysis is no longer what he wants to do. He wants to be cannon fodder for the honor of Zelensky, great man Zelensky himself. And so Nance has suited up and has gone over to Ukraine. And in the video talking to Joy Ann Reeve, he was carrying his weapon. And he basically made the point of saying, you know, I wanted to get involved in this. I wanted to fight for the freedom, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in reality, I have no idea what Nance is doing over there. For all I know, that could be a toy gun. For all I know, he could be getting my ties and getting foot massages um, at some hotel or something. Who knows? For all I know, this could be the way of beefing up his career where he could go back and write books and he could talk about these fanciful tales of things that never basically took place, of heroism and valor. Who knows? I have no idea what Nance is doing over there. What I would say is, this is categorically stupid. <laughs> this is categorically stupid. At the end of the day, and understand how Russia sees this, that basically one step along the way, we, the West, made certain decisions and actions to create a provocation on this front. When the Soviet Union fell, whether it was the expansion of NATO, whether it was the moving 13 countries up to the border, whether it was refusing 
to negotiate around this kind of issue of security guarantees or security concerns, whether it was um, refusing to push Ukraine to fulfill the Minsk Accords, whether it was knocking over the Ukrainian government with this kind of Russophobic fascist regime basically taking office and basically opening up killing on ethnic Ukrainians, uh, Russian Ukrainians. And so you have this kind of weird situation where from their standpoint, you guys provoked this all along the way and not just provoked it. Now you're having mercenaries from all of these various countries come into this country in order to fight us. Now, you can imagine that under that guideline of this is a war that we didn't necessarily want and you're sending your foreign fighters, that is not going to be taken kindly. And so from the Russian perspective, those mercenaries that are coming over there will be prosecuted. Now, they are not going to get the same things as, let's say, an enemy, enemy combatant that was coming from Ukraine. Nope, they will be prosecuted. What Nance, <laughs> what Nance needs to realize, and the best advice that I can give to Nance, to not get caught. At the end of the day, they do have a point. If the United States was involved in a conflict, and you had a bunch of foreign fighters coming into this country. And if the U.S. really did feel like their security concerns were being ignored, that they were being surrounded or encircled, that weapons were being put on their border. And at the point where the U.S. decided to respond, you have all of these foreign fighters jump into the country in order to, we would have some serious concerns. And by the way, we may treat them in the same way. The reality of this is we've ignored and we've pushed this all the way through. At no point did this conflict need to take place. And even to get to the point of Zelensky saying, yeah, behind the scenes, they told me I would never be part of NATO or the willingness to accept arrangements or agreements that would have ended or prevented the war in the first place. Then you add to that this economic war where the goal of it was to basically, after prov provoking conflict, to destroy the Russian economy. And now Nance shows up with pats on the back. Great job fighting for the defense of Ukraine. If I am Nance, if I am Nance, I would do everything in my power at that point to not get caught. Or Nance is going to be paraded about, just like the other people who end up getting caught, labeled as mercenaries, drawn and walked across the screen. Hi, my name is Malcolm Nance. I am a fathead who typically talks on MSNBC, but I decided to get more involved into this particular conflict. Nance, hopefully. And I don't wish any harm on any particular person, but understand, Nance has decided to go into that country, at the very least on an overt level, and kill other people. And the reason and rationale he's doing so is based on this kind of propaganda that he's been inhaling and absorbing, despite the fact that he's been part of party um, of the people dispensing it. Nance, you're not supposed to get high on your own supply. That is typically goes for crackheads. But in this very specific case, we're talking about people who are propagandists. And for whatever reason, Nance started to believe his own nonsense. Manila, I saw this story yesterday and I kept thinking to myself, is he really over there fighting? And I kept, and like, because, look, if you are in the U.S. media and U.S. media is preventing, presenting the story as if um, Ukraine is holding the line or there's the ghost of Kiev that took down 30,000 fighters. That guy. That was Nance. That was Nance. That was Nance. Was that without? He was secretly there already. He was secretly there. He just hadn't told anybody. I mean, they're making it, or they would say, they need more weapons in order to help push back and hold back the Russian force. The reality of it is the Russian forces have been making steady advances. And you can even look at the number of weapons from the Ukraine side that have been destroyed. 
You can look at the number of weapon shipments that they've been receiving and the speed at which apparently they've been going through those weapon systems. I mean, it, and even the numbers, the death numbers. I mean, they were counting casualties, what, 23,000 um, that the Russians are basically saying from the standpoint of irreplaceable losses. Well, Zelensky is saying 2,000. I think the number is comically ridiculous. And I suspect that is more along the Russian side. So is Nance going over there thinking to himself that the Ukrainian military is doing better than what they were actually doing and that his chances of survival is higher than what they actually are. And that's what I'm getting at with don't get high on your own supply. Yes. Like you may be on MSNBC reporting that stuff, but the reality of it is you need to know the reality on the ground. And even hospitals have multiple books where it's like, okay, this is what we charge the person. This is what we charge the insurance company. This is the real price. Meaning you have to know the reality of events even as you are dispensing the nonsense that you're dispensing on MSNBC. Well, here's the thing. It's because... Not only is, is he only exposed yeah. to his own American mainstream media nonsense, mm-hmm. but you add to that the fact that because the American mainstream media is not really showing what the quote-unquote mercenaries, their real stories, yes. that the people that cannot leave, that they're like, hey, you took my passport. I want to go back home. Yes. This is not like Call of Duty at all. You know, like these young kids that think, oh, I'm going to go out there and be brave because I'm a keyboard warrior, right? Playing whatever online game. I'm going to go help out Ukraine. Okay, fine. Like, you think you're doing a good thing. You get there and you're like, wait a minute, what? I can't leave now? Reality on the ground is different. Right. And maybe Malcolm is on that same boat because, you know— there's there's a saying in psychology where where people, you know, um, especially with narcissists, which I would think Malcolm <laughs> now <Nance> qualifies. <laughs> uh, with narcissists, they believe in their own, you know, stories, yeah. right? Even though they know at first it starts off as a lie, it starts off as blowing smoke, but you tell it enough, 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 you eventually actually genuinely believe it. And that is, that is a, a very specific thing to narcissists. Yeah. And again, I don't know Malcolm Nance. I've watched him for a very long time where I just, I mean, to the point that I can't watch him. Yeah. But um, I, I, you know, he, he you puts think out You think believe it? Oh, yeah. I think he puts out enough bluster about himself that yeah. I think he starts to believe in his own, quote, war stories. Oh, as they I were. see. So I think... He's literally believing his own myth of his competence, his own smoke, his own Herculean story. Wow. I think it's a psychological thing. I hope he is as good as he thinks he is because he's going to need it. He's in a real war zone. Yeah, he is in a real war zone. This is not, like you said, Call of Duty. Um, But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment with the one and only Scott Ritter, voice of reason, Scott Ritter. Love that guy. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And as we were having this conversation about the war, it seems that the second stage has opened up in full with all sorts of attacks taking place on the front lines in the Donbass region. If I'm not mistaken, there were over 1,200 attacks overnight. 
As I said earlier, Maripal seems to be on the brink of utter and entire collapse with the forces there being bombarded with weapons, despite the fact that Russia gave them a time frame um, that they can leave. To have a conversation about what is taking place on the ground, especially what we should expect in regards to this second stage of operations, we're joined with the one and only Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter is a former Marine Corps Intel officer who served with the UN implementing arms control treaties, overseeing the disarmament of weapons of mass destruction, and a UN weapons inspector. Scott, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, thanks. Yourself? So far, so good. Better that you are joining us. And I wanted to get into the second stage of the campaign. Um, we have made the point on the show that most of the conflict was taking place basically in the East. That when all of this started, that the main Ukrainian military was basically being encircled in the East, despite, let's say, faint maneuvers or whatnot that was taking place in the various cities. Taking cities wasn't the main point. Smashing the military and degrading the military capacity of Ukraine was. And so now this seems to be taking place in earnest in the very specific area of liberating, or let's say, yeah, I'll go with that, liberating the Donetsk republics. What should we expect in the second phase of this operation going forward? Well, I mean, what we should expect is the um, surrounding and destruction of the main body of uh, Ukraine's best, uh, best forces. Um, and this isn't Russian propaganda that's saying um, that's literally the words of uh, President Zelensky in an interview he gave this past weekend where he, he said that we have 40 to 60,000 of our best troops there. Um, they're at risk of being surrounded. And if we lose them, we lose everything. Um, it's also the words of uh, all of the, um, the, the, the <laughs> highly touted retired military experts who populate the uh, American mainstream media who uh, just uh, a week ago, two weeks ago, were touting uh, Ukraine's miraculous victory uh, in Kiev. Uh, and they are now, you know, looking at the reality of the map and uh, acknowledging that um, <laughs> there's literally nothing that can stop the Russians from accomplishing that which they have set out to accomplish. There's fantasies about the uh, rapid introduction of uh, advanced military equipment <clears throat> that will somehow um, you know, turn the tide in favor of, of Ukraine. But uh, it, that, that's purely in the realm of fantasy. Uh, the fact of the matter is um, militaries go to war with what they got. And right now the Ukrainians have, um, you know, the bulk of their forces that have been degraded logistically from a command and control perspective <clears throat> and uh, having already suffered extensive casualties are trapped uh, geographically, and the Russians who are reinvigorated, uh, they've rearmed, re-equipped, reoriented, uh, and they are uh, motivated to, uh, to bring an end to uh, phase two of this operation. And I, I see, you know, it's unfolding as we speak, um, and I don't expect that the Ukrainians will be able to hold out for very much longer. Uh, militaries can only take so much lost so much degradation before they collapsed. And uh, I think the Ukrainian military is on the brink of total collapse, especially in the east, in the Donbass. Now, now Scott, I got to ask, with, with this recent news that the U.S. is going to be supplying Ukraine now with intelligence, eyes in the sky and what have you, is that a dramatic escalation on the part of the U.S.? And what does that 
do to the Russians? Do they view this as an escalation by the U.S.? And and what's the retaliation for that? Well, first of all, it's already been happening. I mean, the notion that this is something new is uh, is absurd. It's been happening. We've just been not not been talking about it because anytime you talk about intelligence, um, you know, it's no longer intelligence. It means it's public information. Everybody knows about it. But the U.S. has been flying their RC-135 rivet joint aircraft along the borders. That's That collects electronic intelligence, signals intelligence, and that data has been rapidly processed, and there's a direct feed from um, from NATO to the Ukrainian military where this intelligence is, is, is packaged and uh, is used by the Ukrainians uh, in near real time on the battlefield. So the Ukrainians have always been operating with, um, with, with very good intelligence about where the Russians are, what the Russian dispositions are, et cetera. And they've been able to um, use that to, to their advantage. Uh, you know, they've been able to plan ambushes, plan certain strikes, et cetera, with this. Uh, the U.S. is under tremendous political pressure right now to be seen as doing something. And one of the ways they've decided to elevate, um, you know, their 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 footprint, so to speak, in the public eye is to start to publicly acknowledge that which is already happening. So, yes, the U.S. is providing this intelligence. They have been. There's some talk about even further streamlining it so that um, there's less of a time gap as we strip away, uh, you know, the, the sources and methods. We're now just being right up front with the Ukrainians. Which, by the way, means we're being up front with Russia. This, as an intelligence officer, I have to tell you that what we're doing right now is is stupid, um, because we're putting at risk billion-dollar systems. And I don't mean that they're going to be lost. The Russians are going to shoot them down. It means that the Russians are becoming familiar with our capabilities and uh, are learning uh, how to mask themselves from these capabilities. So if there was ever a future fight that uh, directly involved the United States with Russia. Russia is better equipped now to deal with U.S. intelligence capabilities. So we're sort of, you know, losing sight of the forest for the trees here. Um, it's it just it's 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 foolish, but it's political. Every aspect of what we're doing right now in Ukraine is purely political, designed to create some sort of cover for American politicians who, if as I believe will happen, the Ukrainian military is defeated and the Ukrainian government faces total collapse, at some point in time, people are going to be asking, you know, how did this happen? Why didn't you do more? And so they're trying to make a case that they're doing everything possible, including providing uh, very sensitive intelligence information. For the Russians, this only increases animosity. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, we can talk about intelligence, but on the battlefield, intelligence equates to military operations that result in dead Russians. And people only need to reflect on the anger uh, that exists in the United States at a figure such as Qasim Soleimani, who, um, who you know, was accused of leading Iranian operations in Iraq that killed up to 600 Americans. We were so furious that, we, that they assassinated this guy. Imagine the Russians' anger knowing that American intelligence linked to American weapons uh, have led to the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands, of Russians on the field of battle. You know, anger cuts two ways. And I can guarantee you the Russians are mad and they have a long memory. Naked hypocrisy is just kind of something we do these days. And unfortunately, this idea of understanding from the other person's point of view doesn't seem to be part of this process. Um, From the standpoint of the training, how fast or how long does it take to train? Meaning, if Biden is sending these weapons, 
And these weapons are supposed to go into the battlefield, I would imagine, because the battle is basically taking place now. How much training do these things typically take? And where is this training supposed to basically take place? Let's start with the second part, because that's the easiest part. <clears throat> I think the training right now is taking place in Poland. Uh, Ukraine has sent uh, uh, its uh, soldiers that, uh, under a concept called train the trainer. So they've sent some of their best uh, soldiers to Poland where they're being trained by the United States on this equipment and on the tactics uh, that are associated with uh, the use of this uh, equipment. And then they're expected to go into Ukraine with this equipment and then train up a, uh, a Ukrainian unit that can use this stuff in combat. How long does it take? Look, <laughs> let's just focus on you know the 18 artillery pieces that the United States is uh, providing. That's a battalion's worth of artillery, three firing batteries of six howitzers each. Um, and they're coming with what's called U-36 radar, which is a counter-battery radar. So the idea is that the Ukrainians will deploy this radar, detect Russian artillery, and then these 18 howitzers will fire counter-artillery fire to destroy them. Um, I used to do this for a living. I was in an artillery battalion. I used the Q-36 extensively, and I re redid our entire training concept so that we could fight a Soviet threat, which is the same as the Russian threat. We've trained literally 270 days a year for two and a half years straight while I was with the 5th Battalion, 11th Marines, perfecting these tactics. Um, one thing we learned, if a Q-36 radar is left on too long, uh, it's a radar, so it's emitting a signal. It gets detected and destroyed. So you have to learn cueing, how to put acoustic sensors out. So when you hear the blast, you turn on the radar for a second to pick up the parabolic you know, descent of the shell, turn it off, fire your guns. Your radar has to move. Your guns have to move. Um, so you have to have another radar ready to set up. It took two and a half years to perfect this. And when I left, we were considered to finally be combat capable, but you had to sustain that training. You're not going to get the Ukrainians to do this with a train-the-trainer concept that involves taking this stuff into combat and training the troops in combat. They will be dead within a few days. Guaranteed. There's no way. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. It's called Operation Suicide. Anybody who knows anything about artillery and modern warfare knows that this is doomed to fail, and yet politics requires the United States to be seen as doing something. So we are going to send a couple hundred Ukrainians to a guaranteed death. That's an absolute 100% guarantee. Take it to the bank. Now, Scott, what about uh, the international community as far as the other NATO countries like Germany, for example, today announced that they're going to be sending some anti-tank um, hard hardware out there. They're going to be sending more guns, more ammo, more. They're going to actually be sending the the hardware that Zelensky's been begging us for. Uh, meanwhile, we know that Nord Stream 2 has been put on hold under, uh, under Schultz here, whereas this is very different than how Angela Merkel handled uh, the U.S. and the demand to, to halt Nord Stream 2. With Germany stepping up their involvement in terms of supplying Ukraine with, with uh, heavy metal. What does this do when all of this ends? Sooner or later, this, this war has to come to an end. What does this do then to the German-Russo relationship? And what happens with this $11 billion 
pipeline Nord Stream 2 because Nord Stream 1 is still operating and no one's talking about that. So there is still a relationship between Russia and Germany. What does their stepped up involvement do to that relationship? Well, the thing about coalition parliamentarian governments is it's, it doesn't define the nation. It's defined by the party in charge. And so simply put, when the Schultz government collapses, because I don't believe it's long for this world, uh, there will be a new politician who comes in and that new politician will be uh, charged with correcting the deficiencies of the Schultz government, which will primarily be economic in nature and will involve somehow repairing a relationship with Russia. That's my feeling for the future. Uh, in the short term on this military stuff, again, if it has it, if it's not already in the Ukrainian military, how do the Germans think the Ukrainians are going to absorb it? both from a logistical standpoint. How do you maintain this? Do you have mechanics who've gone to mechanic school who can maintain this <laughs> through the stress of combat? Uh, have they ever used it before? Do you have people who can drive this stuff, employ this stuff? It's the first time they're going to be taken for a test drive when they're going up against a highly trained oh boy. high tactical group. So the Germans are insane. This is a political gesture. Again, the end result will be nothing but dead Ukrainians. They won't even get to kill any Russians because they have zero tactical competence in the equipment they're being expected to use in combat under the most stressful conditions imaginable. This isn't Iraq. This isn't Afghanistan. This is large-scale land combined arms operations. The Russians are experts at this, and the Ukrainians are now, what, being told to absorb new equipment they've never dealt with before and employ it with tactical proficiency on the battlefield while they're being slaughtered by the Russians? Come on, this is a pipe dream. This is something that Malcolm Nance might have come up with. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, would would you compare what is about to happen with all this, this hardware that Germany is going to send? Would you compare that to when we got the hell out of Dodge in Afghanistan last year, and then the Taliban takes, you know, a Black Hawk helicopter, gets it up into the air for about 40 seconds, before it comes crashing down. Well, we are. I mean, the, the bottom line is we're sending material into Ukraine that will either end up destroyed or captured. And, um, you know, the, 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 the Russians have already, I mean, the, the People's uh, Republic of Donetsk and uh, Lugansk have already received uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of Javelin missiles, in-law missiles that they're using now against the Ukrainians. Uh, and I'm sure they're going to welcome the addition of... Uh, <laughs> German equipment. I mean, they'll 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 appreciate it. Uh, you know, it's multi-billion dollars worth of arms infusion for free, just like the Taliban appreciated us giving them billions of dollars of our finest military equipment. We're, uh, Europe and the United States is doing the same thing right now because this cannot be absorbed by the Ukrainian military under the conditions they're currently operating in. Plus, we know that the majority of it's going to go into a warehouse somewhere near Lvov that's going to be immediately hit by a caliber cruise missile, as we've seen in the last couple of days. How you expect to get this stuff into Ukraine, unpackaged, train people up <laughs> to combat without the Russians detecting it and interdicting it is beyond me. But again, Malcolm Nance probably has the solution. I was going to say, because they have Malcolm Nance now. He knows. Malcolm Nance knows he's the he's greatest intelligent agent ever. You know, that's why he's on MSNBC, that's right? That's right. He's a gem. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious on something. Chris Coons um, has been... <clears throat> Pretty provocative, to put it mildly. And is going places even Biden has enough confidence not to go. And this is kind of on this notion of sending U.S. troops into Ukraine. I have no idea what he thinks is going to take place 
if he does something like that. And yet, this is stuff that he's basically talking about. As somebody who was in the military, could you discuss this for a moment? What is your take on this? This seems to be insane to me. Well, you know, in the in the legal profession, they they, they you've heard the term, you know, asked and answered. Meaning, when somebody you know starts raising an issue, they just say, "You already asked that question; it's already being answered. Let's move on." <laughs> the question's been asked; it's been answered. Your commander in chief, Joe Biden, who says under no circumstances will he consider sending U.S. troops in because there's this thing called World War III that involves thermonuclear weapons, and everybody will die. Uh, Jan Stoltenberg, the hawkish leader of uh, the Secretary General of NATO, pretty answered this question. NATO will not get involved on the ground in Ukraine because it leads to World War III. Kuntz is an American politician. American politicians are known to say the dumbest things in the world, <laughs> scoring cheap political points on TV. We had the weekend. We had the Sunday talk shows. Chris Kuntz opened his mouth. The stupidity came out. It made headlines. Temporary political victory. It has nothing to do with reality. I can guarantee you Joe Biden isn't listening to Chris Coons. No generals are listening to Chris Coons, Chris Coons, because this question has already been addressed by people who get paid to address it, not idiots like Chris Coons, for not going to war in Ukraine, especially now when it's over. But you made the point yourself that this is political at this point. This is not based on, you know, military rationality or anything like that. These guys have gotten into their heads that Ukraine is the most important thing in the history of things that are important. And I mean, even from the standpoint of the economic war that these guys are taking a hit, the Western countries are basically taking a massive economic hit um, going forward, even accepting this notion of a recession going forward. You don't, you're not concerned that there's this kind of, I don't know, um, inching to the brink or inching to oblivion um, in the way that it's going, or just zero concern about mission creep at all in this? Well, at the end of the day, you know, Chris Coons, or some politician, I'll give you an example. Donald Trump wanted to bomb the hell out of Iran. I don't know if I can say that on the air, but you can. Yes. Iran. And um, you remember, they shot down a drone, and he said, let's just go take out those air defense sites. Boom, 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 boom. And the military went, and if we do this, this is going to happen. These are the consequences. And even Donald Trump went, Whoa, that's too much for me, man. I'm <laughs> right now. You know, okay. So let's say Biden, you know, listens to Coons. Coons convinces him. Biden turns to Miley and says, "Send the troops." And he says, "Who do you want to kill first? The 82nd Airborne, because they're paratroopers. So if we send them in the tanks. We'll turn them into little road bumps. Uh, you want to send them the Striker Brigade, because uh, they're light armored vehicles. They'll be dead before they get 20 miles into Ukraine. Maybe the the, the single heavy armored brigade we have." You know, the one that's going to get on the highways and then going to be destroyed as it as it approaches. We don't have the troops, Mr. President. We don't have the troops in theater to do this. This is why we're having a NATO summit in June in Madrid, where we're going to confront NATO with the necessity to front up billions of dollars so we can send more material to Europe. But until NATO's ready to pay for it and tell us where they're going to permanently base them, we ain't sending them. You want to go to war in Ukraine, Mr. President? You can't do it with the forces you have on hand. That's the military truth, the military reality. And Chris Coons doesn't count because he's not a player. The reality is that the generals will tell Biden we can't do it. Now, Scott, next week is the ASEAN summit, and they're they're actually coming here to D.C. I, I guess Biden's hosting everybody because now that the masks are off, everyone can come here, I guess. Um, and we know that we know that at least we heard it from Jen Psaki that 
that they seem to be living in this delusional world where they can convince the America's Asian friends to join America's side on this and stand with Ukraine, whereas most of Asia has been either either just obviously behind Russia or they're like, hey, don't, don't talk to me about any of this. I'm neutral. I'm, I'm friends with you and I'm friends with you. And that's how we're going to stay. How much do you think this ASEAN summit next week is going to influence the Asian countries to get on the side of the U.S. and turn their backs on Russia when Russia is actually their closest neighbor between superpowers here? Well, I think we're, you know, there's another country that counts in this, and that's China. Um, and that China has taken a very pro-Russian point of view here. Uh, China is also looking at the potential of replicating the Ukraine experience in Taiwan. Um, and so I, I, I think that what's going to happen here is that these nations are going to come together, going to be placed under tremendous amount of pressure by the United States, and then they're going to politely tell the United States to pound sand because they care more about the future of their respective nations than they do about appeasing the political needs of a failed American politician. I mean, Joe Biden is, you know, people tend to forget he's horribly unpopular. Um, and, you know, he's facing a critical midterm election where his party's probably going to lose control of both houses of Congress, which will paralyze him as a leader. Who wants to sign up to that team? Unfortunately, a lot of people have, unfortunately. Um, we had a question from the audience, um, Scott. So this is Bray from ATL. He said, can you elaborate on the process of purchasing weapons and transferring to Ukrainian military? The story from CNN, what's the possibility of the weapons being secretly filtered into other theaters of war, not in Ukraine? Well, big weapons like the howitzers and tanks and things like that, no. They're, they're going to go to Ukraine and they're going to either be turned over to the Donetsk militia or turned into scrap metal. Um, little weapon, here's the big concern. The Javelin missiles, the in-laws, the Stinger anti-air missiles, and the other manned portable anti-air systems that are going in are being absorbed not just by the Ukrainian military, but more and more by the people's militias uh, who have been reinforced by the opening of prisons. Now, when you think about people signing up to fight for a country, they're, they're saying, my loyalty is to the country. I believe in the society. If you open the prisons where your worst people are who have already said, we don't care about society, that's why we're in prison. Um, <laughs> now giving them these, these weapons, and when this war ends, and it's going to end, these, these prisoners aren't going back to prison. They're going to sink back into the shadowy society of the crime world where there is a black market that permeates Europe. And guess what's going to be on the black market? Javelins, laws, stingers. And they're going to come back to Western Europe. And at some point in time, you're going to have a Western politician taken out by a javelin missile fired by a terrorist group. You're going to have an airliner shot down by a stinger missile fired by a terrorist group. And the only person to blame is Joe Biden, Jan Stoltenberg, and every idiot politician decided it was a good idea to flood Ukraine with these weapons. You know what's got two things, two points here. Uh, the first thing, we saw the movie Armageddon. It worked in Armageddon, you know, get the criminals out of prison and they become heroes and they save the earth along with Bruce Willis. So 
you know, maybe they're following that doctrine, the Armageddon doctrine. Um, and secondly, speaking of arms going in the black markets, um, a, a Japanese Yakuza boss was recently busted for trying to sell javelins or acquiring, yeah, RPGs and javelins and stuff. Um, I think it. I think this just happened in New York City. So, like you said, these arms that we we send out to wherever, it can eventually come back to bite us in the butt. So, a, a Japanese yakuza boss had some of these uh, pretty heavy artillery. Scott, um, we're going to close. We only have about a minute left. Anything you want to add before we close? I mean, look, we're we're reaching the theater of the absurd here. You watch uh, mainstream media, um, and you're just being fed one lie after the other lie after the other, not even clever about disguising it. Um, but reality has a hard way of making itself known, and it's being made known now. It doesn't mean that, that you know, I, I guess I'll leave you with this. My heart breaks for the Ukrainian people being asked to pay a price for political failures that, that have occurred in Europe, the United States, and in their own government. And um, I'll just leave with that. I mean, the bottom line is, Tens of millions of people are displaced. Tens of thousands are dying and others are suffering. And we have idiots like Malcolm Nance going over there trying to, you know, gain some sort of uh, exposure from it. Yeah, exactly what it is. Well Scott, put. thank you for this, man. I really appreciate it. And yeah, like Manila said, very well put. Scott Ritter is a Marine Corps, um, Marine Corps Intel officer who serves with the UN implementing arms control treaties, overseeing the disarmament of weapons of mass destruction and a UN weapons inspector. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with my co-host, Manila Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And we're testing out the Thrilla in Manila. What? <laughs> that means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and the Thrilla. I, I was looking at the chat when they were like, um, what is that, Thrilla Manila? There was another one, Manila... He said no manila vanilla. That is so No like, vanilla. No, no, not vanilla. I thought they were using like thriller. They were using something else. I was looking in the chat, but they were trying I to help the, out. I asked the audience, like, yeah. I need your ideas. Cause I'm like, I don't know a good, like, snappy yeah. tagline. To go around the thing. I mean, look, they will give it to you. I, Political Misfits was named by somebody in the audience. That's really cool. And and yeah. I like that name. That's really cool. Yeah. So, so, like, the Thrilla and Manila, we're just stealing that from Muhammad Ali, though, so I kind of feel... We are. Let's see. Manila to Thriller. Okay, what about Manila to Thriller? But that's still the same thing. No, it's same. different. It's Beforehand, it was the Thriller in Manila being a place. But, yeah. But this is Manila as a person. But we're stealing that from Muhammad Ali's fight. If you had to steal it from somebody, he I mean, would that's be the a person to steal it from. Yeah, that's a pretty good person to steal it from. I mean, he's pretty iconic. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Um, Joe Frazier hates him. Joe Frazier absolutely hates him. Joe Frazier used to have on his answering machine, I'm the guy that put Muhammad Ali in a wheelchair. Like he used to, yeah. 
Yeah, because if you remember, Muhammad Ali used to joke him Super remorselessly. Yeah, I know. Like he used to call him, what he used to call him, dumb. He used to call him incompetent. He used to um. Well, not joke a lot him. of boxers were as bright as Muhammad Ali, though. No. So let's be honest. And, so, and for Ali, it was publicity. He just looked at it as this is the way to gin up support for the fight. These people are going to be interested. I mean, they were they there were stories they were talking about how Ali would go into this kind of I don't rage is not the right word for it, but seemed like he was out of his mind, like completely uncontrollable and everything else. And a lot of this stuff was publicity. Um, Frazier didn't take it that way. Right. Frazier took that personally. Yeah, he took that personally. I mean, those guys had been in that fight where Frazier was blind half of the fight, if I remember correctly. And in much of that fight, both of them, but it was to the point where Ali was peeing blood. I mean, like it was bad at the end of that fight. I forget which one this was. I think it was either the first or the third. Peeing blood. Yeah, it was bad. If you remember, Frazier's corner refused to let him come back out. Ali came out, took a few steps, and collapsed immediately as soon as he came to Tucson. They just would not stop fighting. They just kept going on and on and on. And it was like at the last minute, the ref or the corner man for Frazier called it. But that that was one of the most brutal fights. I know. Brutal fights. But, yeah, they don't get along all that well after I mean, that's, um, everything. That's yeah. pre-MMA. Yes. Way pre-MMA. Intensely pre-MMA. Like when, is- when they these guys are in a grudge match. Right. Um, and two different styles of fighters. And, yeah, but Frazier, I think Ali made the point of saying Frazier, what he said, he will be the guy I would go to war with. Something to that effect. Just because of what Frazier was able to take on in that fight. So, they, what, they fought three times, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, and, it, was, yeah. it was astonishing look at fights. Um, but let me get the headlines. In the news, in the news, horrible news, the London court made a formal decision to extradite Julian Assange to the United States on Wednesday. However, the final decision is made by the UK government. WikiLeaks tweeted that the defense team has until May 18th to challenge the decision before Home Secretary Priti Patel makes the decision on the ruling. Should he be extradited to the United States where he's accused of espionage, Assange faces up to 175 years in prison. And again, keep in mind, we've had John on talking about this once before, that the agreements and everything else that the U.S. may make with the um, U.K. government can't keep those agreements. Like basically that the U.S. government has less control over that as opposed to, let's say, the Bureau of Prisons when they make the choice on where they're going to send this person to that place. And so it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to make all of these agreements for Assange. The moment that you get him to the country, none of the stuff matters. Of course. Yeah. It's just if any if, if any of that talk about being humane or whatever to Julian Assange actually was happening in back channels, mm-hmm. we would have heard from the Aussies, from the Australians, his home country, that they would house him. Yeah. Is because that was part of the negotiations. It was like, oh, we're not gonna keep him in supermax prisons in, you know, Kansas or wherever wherever we tuck away the, the worst of the worst, yeah. right? As a journalist. Right. Or, Think about that being a keyboard person you know that's horrible but they they have not made any deals with his home country as much as that was part of the u.s doj's position Mm -hmm. at the uk high court was they were saying oh no we're gonna treat him well we're gonna he won't go to supermax in fact we're gonna allow him to go to his own country back home to australia with his people and his family and if that was the case they could have did that without him coming here right in the first place but the thing is Australia doesn't has as far as I know has not formally said we we got the request which is appalling when you think about it that's his home country I mean that's astonishing I know there was a UFO guy man I can't think of his name right now but they're a client state to the US so they're they're just 
they're not going to say anything. Yeah, they, they, and that's sad. I mean, because so. their responsibility should be to assign their citizen first. Yeah, a and lot that's of not countries, a lot of shoulds for our own citizens, their citizens. Thousand percent agree with you on that so, front. So I'm not surprised. There was a guy in the UK, this was under Cameron's government, and the guy basically broke into NASA, if I remember correctly. So he heard that there was UFO stuff that NASA was keeping track of. So oh, his thought was, that. yeah, so his thought was, I'm going to break into NASA. So he goes, he says the password is like password one, two, three, something no. like that. This is back. I think he said he's using like 56K modem, like it's just old stuff. And he said he gets in and he's like looking at the things that are in the system. And he said, finally, somebody says, who is this? Like sends him a message. And he's like, oh, God, he closes everything. Got to get away. Got to get away. Chat box. Yeah. Somebody like opened it with a chat box window to it. Um, <laughs> they spotted him. He gets a meeting or he gets a visit by basically UK security. And at that point, they tried to extradite him. His mom was on television basically saying, don't extradite my kid, don't extradite my son. Cameron, to his credit, denied the US extradition request on that. Now, the catch is the fact that he was looking up UFO stuff and it's like, is he, is he being real? Well, they did try to extradite him. So he was clearly in the system. He was doing something. Um, so I, I guess my point is there are some situations. I guess Julian Assange is just too high profile in in the sense of... Oh, for sure. Yeah, the UK is just like, you know. And let me just say this. The relationship between the UK and US, um, we have... I, and I knew this was going to happen. And, and, and uh, Chris Hedges and I have discussed this on my, my old show, uh, Ad Nauseam. Yeah. The UK and the US, anytime there's an extradition to be had, there's something about... Something like a... Literally almost 100% extradition uh, extradition approval. And then when you look at the numbers of when the UK extradites to the US, what their conviction rate is, an astounding 96% conviction. Not shocked. 96%. So this is, if Preeti Patel says yes to this, which I'm sure she's gonna because based on statistics, the numbers numbers are there. She's gonna say yes. He's gonna come here. And the fix is in. He's he's done for. They tor- they've tortured that man for eight years in the public light. I mean, astonishing stuff. And this is the West who says, oh, we care about journalism and we care about democracy and we care about the- nonsense. Nonsense. When that stuff becomes inconsiderate or um, a problem, no issue. Well, doing he's that not Malcolm Nance. No, he's so not. So that's, they care about Malcolm Nance. That's so unfortunate. I feel so bad for um, Assange doing this. Let's keep going. I mean, because I followed the story for so long and it feels like it's like every turn and twist that was a part of the story. And now it culminates into this. In COVID news, the Biden administration said on Tuesday that it would likely appeal a recent court decision by the Florida federal judge to end COVID-19 related mask mandates on public transportation. The Department of Justice said they, quote, disagree with the district court's decision and would appeal subject to CDC's conclusion that the order remains necessary for public health, unquote. In national news, on Tuesday, the U.S. Department of Education announced major changes to the student loan repayment program designed to address what it described as, quote, longstanding failures, unquote. The program will provide immediate forgiveness to some 40,000 borrowers and give another 3.6 million borrowers at least three years of additional credit towards income-driven repayment forgiveness, which can take a total of 20 to 25 years of payment. 25 years. You know what a country that cares about education don't do? put 25 years of debt on the back of a 19-year-old. That's what they don't do. 
Mexico quietly disbanded the elite special anti-narcotics unit that worked with the DEA for the past 25 years, according to a report by Reuters. The DEA was informed of the unit's disbanding back in April 21st, but it was not announced publicly. There's another story coming out of Mexico having to do with lithium. I don't know if you've seen this. The lower court in Mexico has basically approved um, a, let's say, a plan that could potentially nationalize lithium reserves. Not just lithium, but other um, minerals also. Keep an eye on this one. This could be big, especially for Mexico and that industry and the amount of money they could bring in on that particular resource. Keep in mind, lithium is necessary for batteries. And so when Bolivia was coming up with this deal with China and everything else, it's a big, big deal going into the future, especially if you expect lithium and batteries to be the future in general. The United States lacks the capability to reliably track the array of weapons being sent by the Biden administration to Ukraine, CNN reported on Tuesday, citing sources briefed by U.S. intelligence. Quote, we have fidelity for a short time, but when it enters the fog of war, we have almost zero Unquote, a source said, quote, it drops back into a big black hole and you have almost no sense of it after a short period of time. Unquote. Basically, we've been dumping them weapons. We have no idea where those weapons are basically going, how they're being used or if they're just being destroyed. In international news, the Chinese foreign ministry promised to beef up bilateral cooperation with Russia Federation Tuesday and a statement issued following the meeting Monday between Chinese vice foreign minister Lei Yesheng, or Yesheng, and Russian ambassador to China, and Andrei Denisov. Quote, no matter how the international situation changes, China will, as always, strengthen strategic coordination with Russia to achieve win-win cooperation, jointly safeguard the common interests of both sides, and promote the building of a new type of international relations and community with a shared future for mankind, the statement reads. After the start of the Russian operation in Ukraine, the Biden administration wanted Saudi Arabia to produce more oil in order to damage the financial and military sectors of the Russian economy, reports said on Tuesday. Riyadh's commercial and political interests have been significantly altered after the Saudis became the biggest oil supplier to China and stopped selling as much oil to the United States as they have been doing for decades, the report said. It's not just that, China has also been investing billions of dollars in Saudi Arabia and has been strengthening that relationship. And this gets to this whole story or this question of the petrodollar and whether or not there will be something called the petro yuan. Keep an eye on Saudi Arabia. There's an argument to be made that the dollar's hegemonic status in the world as this kind of reserve currency is on some level um, allowed just based on this kind of petrodollar standard that exists. If that starts to unravel, what happens? What happens. Turkey has no intention to infringe on Iraq's territorial integrity, and the recently launched anti-terror operation is aimed only at ensuring Turkey border security, Turkey's border security. Turkish Foreign Minister Melvut Lugo said on Tuesday. On Monday, Turkey initiated a cross-border anti-terrorist operation against Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, in northern Iraq, saying the PKK formations were planning a large-scale offensive. Ankara dispatched 42 task forces consisting of 654 soldiers to identify and neutralize PKK militants in border regions. The Iraqi presidential office stated that Turkish operation undermines the country's national security. Netflix has suffered a disastrous 25.7% drop in shares after the company revealed it had lost 200,000 subscribers compared to the first quarter of 2021, 
After the streaming platform announced it was pulling out of Russian market, it experienced a major customer outflow with at least 700,000 subscribers lost, resulting in the first drop in the number of subscribers since 2011. If I'm not mistaken, that number, they were expecting like an additional million or two million more people. Um, and they lost 700,000, in which case the stock got hammered. Billionaire businessman Elon Musk is looking to invest 15 billion of his money to delist Twitter from the New York Stock Exchange and to take it private to pursue his aim of making the social media giant a model of free speech, the New York Post reported on Tuesday, citing sources in the know. Basically, the famed Mr. Anonymous. Famed Mr. Anonymous. In holiday news, it is 420 National Pot Smokers Day, Weed Smokers Day, or National Weed Day, whichever one you want to call it. We have Banana Day, April 20, 2022, third Wednesday in April. We have the Chinese Language Day, Lima Bean Respect Day, Lookalike Day, National Cheddar Fries Day, as we mentioned earlier, goes very well with the National Pot Smokers Day. Smoke that pot, get some cheese fries, celebrate two in one holidays. To this day in history, in 1902, we have Pierre and Marie Curie, or yeah, Marie Curie, discovered the radioactive element, radium. In 1951, a human organ is successfully transplanted for the very first time. In 1978, Soviet air defenses shoot down Korean airliner, 902. In 1999, 15 die in Columbine High School massacre. In 2010, the Deepwater Horizon ore rig explodes. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. So let's do this. Let's take a break. We're going to come back with our guest, Scotty Nell Hughes. You're not going to want to miss it. We have right many really good segments to talk to her about, including Trey Lorenz. Not Trey Lorenz. I'm sorry. Taylor Lorenz basically outing somebody. And this is the same person that was basically crying about the same thing that she basically just did. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. And definitely hit that rumble button. Hit that rumble button. If you guys want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. I'm going to go to this clip because, or I'm going to go to this particular story first because this story, my producer was telling me about this and I thought this was just entirely outrageous. Taylor Lorenz, a Washington Post internet Culture Beat reporter who earlier was crying about being doxxed and how difficult her life was as a reporter. Doxxed somebody else. And keep in mind, she's made a career out of basically doxxing other people, which is why she was getting so much pushback from the likes of Tucker Carlson or Glenn Greenwald or some of these other right wingers who basically went after her. To have a conversation about this, we're joined with Scotty Nell Hughes. We have several topics, but I want to get to this one first because yes. I find this one to be the most outrageous. But we're joined with Scotty Nell Hughes. Scotty is a regular guest at this point um, on Fault Lines. She is a political commentator and journalist that used to host News Hughes Hughes on RT. Still sad for me to say that. 
I um, know. Yeah. Scotty, how you doing this morning? You doing all right? Well, I don't have a Washington Post reporter at my front door, so I consider that winning on this Wednesday. I like, know, right? But you've had reporters come to your say, door. Yeah, yeah, Scotty's been harassed at home. Yeah, that's perfect. This story is great for you because you've experienced this where somebody basically showed up at your house to get an interview. Correct, um, correct me if I'm wrong. Oh, you're absolutely correct. That's why when all this has been coming out, I've been, I'm having to resist. You know, so many times we have to look, how many times have you gone on Twitter and and typed something in and then like looked at it and put it in drafts or deleted it? And you're like, oh, I want to, I just want to press send. I want to press send, but you don't. That's how I have felt with this whole Taylor Lorenz situation, because I can go down the list of reporters that this is what they, this is their standard practice that in their, I guess their school of journalism, they were taught that it's okay to go pe- to people's personal homes and assault their friends and their family to get the story that is justified. I want to play this clip. This is the same person who basically outed the group that we're talking about. This is Lib TikTok. And like I said, ended up at the person's door. I think it was like a family member story. It wasn't even the direct person. It says, which one of my relatives did you enjoy harassing the most in their homes yesterday? This is the same person who's doing this harassment who basically showed up at the door. Taylor Lorenz. Let's play the clip of her a couple of weeks ago. Story, you soulless effing Then also you'll see there's these, there's many people that are tweeting, um, you know, here's, these are Taylor Lorenz's loved ones. They have everyone. photos. Wow, these are all photos of your family members. Yeah. Children. All, yeah. They'll, they'll threaten children. They'll threaten my parents. I've had to remove every single social tie. I had severe PTSD from this. I, I contemplated suicide. It got really bad. You feel like any little piece of information that gets out on you will be used by the worst people on the internet to destroy your life. And it's so isolating and terrifying. It's horrifying. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's overwhelming. It's really hard. It's overwhelming. It's just overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. I gotta admit, I'm not as hip to pop culture stuff or pop culture phenomenons like Scotty is. Yeah. Uh, I had to look up who Taylor Lorenz was. Yeah. Because I... I didn't know who she was. I really did not know. I checked out this morning. I was looking over the research and I was like, so wait, this woman has been doxing people? And she's out there complaining about being docs. Yeah, made a career of it. And now, after two weeks ago, where she's basically crying, it's so overwhelming. It's just so overwhelming. She's now at somebody's door and outed these people. And by the way, I feel some kind of way about this because of what took place with RT at that point, Mm -hmm. where they outed RT and all of those people end up showing up protesting and creating these kind of difficult um, times based on story that came out. Scotty, how do you view this? I mean, like I said, you've, encountered this where people showed up at your door in this particular way. What do you think? Well, here's the thing. I want to hold Taylor Lorenz. She should be held accountable for this. But let's also understand that this is not only just Taylor coming up with this genius idea or if she did originally come up with it. This is there's as in every newsroom, there are layers of management. So she has a boss who has a boss who has a boss. Mm-hmm. Somewhere along the line, since this was not her first example of doxing, somewhere She was praised for whatever information she got by using this strategy to get the story. So I want to see not only Taylor Lorenz, I agree, she should get all the heat that she's getting for us because what she ended up doing, and I think the timing of this could not be better to justify why Elon Musk needs to take over Twitter, Mm -hmm. however he does it, because this just shows 
where journalism has gone to and why this is she what Taylor went after was this anonymous video account, this t- Twitter account. Libs of TikTok. Libs of TikTok. And I've been following Libs for the past year, and mainly they've been just putting out their videos, not really much commentary, but videos that the mainstream media refused to put out there because it went against their narrative. These are, And it's not even just one-sided. People said that it was conservative. Well, now we're finding out, now that the person has been unveiled behind it, it is an Orthodox Jewish woman. So if you know anything about the Orthodox, they're very conservative, but it's more about she wasn't it was more about socially conservative. So she was putting out a lot of those videos of the stash and um, st- the, the grab and go that we were violence that was happening at these malls. She was the one putting these videos out when nobody else would. And we all have people in our lives. You know, we all have a very good friend who is great at finding out anything on the Internet. And that's what she did all day. She would search all these sites, search all these personal feeds and find these stories that nobody else would cover and put the videos out there to expose what really was going on in America that the mainstream media didn't want you to know about. And that just couldn't happen. And they had to get to it. So this is why Twitter is so important right now, because this backlash to Elon Musk buying it, because all he wants to do is bring transparency to it. And this is what they don't need right now. And and who they is, that's the million-dollar question. Who is they? But just the the overall – and you have had members of the mainstream media come out and and praise Taylor and try to say that this is just not fair, that she she doesn't deserve this type of targeting – and it just shows what there's a clear line in journalism right now that we're going to have to figure out how do we move forward? Because one side is all for just showing you one narrative and the other side is all for showing you everything and letting you decide. I'm on the ladder. I want to see it all. Let me choose. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you on that. And what makes it so bad, it's, it seems to be a playbook. The Taylor Lawrence is one thing. But the other story is Alex Jones. Alex Jones is basically filing um, filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And, you know, Jones, whatever you want to think of him, Jones has a skill of being able to just, it's a skill. I don't know what else to call it. Like, he sits, he's so entertaining. Like, he can talk about the weirdest stuff that's out there, gay frogs, all that stuff. (laughs) But is he entertaining? Yes. And should he be taken off air just because of stuff that people don't necessarily like? For me, this was the canary in the coal mine. Um, I did not like Alex Jones all that much by the same right. token. when not they took flavor. Yeah, but when he took him off, I was doing video after video right. saying this is um, beyond the pale. I can't believe you're doing this, right. et cetera. Because the thought is, if you're taking him off, what is it in? Scotty, here's another thing to think about, though, with this whole BK Chapter 11 thing, is that a lot of people, I mean, I'm no tax attorney, But from a lot of people criticizing that he's filing this falsely because dude ain't broke. Let's be honest. He ain't broke. What he's doing is protecting his assets from being seized because of the Newtown ruling. Um, The libel charges and whatever other charges he faced. um, But he's trying to protect his assets. It says last September, Mr. Jones lost two defamation lawsuits filed in Texas by victims claiming that because he failed to provide requested information to the court. Months later, in a case representing the families of eight others killed in a shooting, a Connecticut judge ruled that Mr. Jones was liable by default because he had refused to turn over documents ordered by the court, including financial records. The ruling delivered sweeping victories to the families 
And so that's what you're saying. That basically, this is his way of trying to restructure in order to protect his assets. Right, from so being he doesn't sued. have to pay up. Yeah. Interesting. So, Scotty, what do you think about this? I mean, this seems to be a playbook at this point. Basically, eliminate the person from social media. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever sources they basically use in order to make income. And then utilize lawsuits once their income is basically undermined and destroyed. At the very least, this was the playbook for Alex Jones. But the, definitely the removal of social media ended up being a standard, you can call it modest operandi, going forward. What do you think about this? Well, make no mistake, and you're right, this is a playbook, because what happened to Alex Jones, him being taken off air, taken off of every social media platform, that was phase one, and it worked. But before we get to the actual, this is a new playbook that they're going to use on talk radio, is these civil lawsuits to get these voices silenced and off the air. Point out, what Alex Jones said was wrong, and he was completely wrong. Yeah. I am someone that do that does believe that journalists, just like in the case of Taylor, they should be held accountable when they say something wrong. No, you know, for whatever reason they say it, unless he can prove that he was given evidence, and he obviously is not, that this was true. What he said about those Sandy Hook children and those parents was, yeah. was not only hurtful, but it was damaging to all in talk radio by him throwing that kind of slander. And I do believe he should be held accountable in these civil lawsuits could be say that they are justified. However, the problem with this is, is that it's only one-sided. Think about it. Every journalist who knowingly went out there and made through flame-throwing statements just to get attention, just to get some sort of like uh, national fame, even if it's for a negative, was held accountable when they said something wrong. It would be a whole different ballpark we were in. I mean, even just the last year, of everything, of all the, even the last weeks, everything dealing with the, the Russian-Ukraine conflict. If every journalist out there thro flame-throwing, saying false things just to get a crowd's reaction was held accountable for it, oh, I almost, that would be amazing. Because you would see probably half the mainstream media's narrative change real quick, if not more than that. Right. So I believe in accountability. I think he needs to be held accountable. But I do believe that this is a new playbook that they are going to use to try to go after talk radio, the one medium they've had a real hard time in the past holding accountable. But here's the other thing people are missing. Talk radio is different from any other medium. Well, yes, you go to get your information from here. And yes, I believe that you both and most radio shows do put out the truth out there. It is still a commentary. You do not listen nine times out of ten. You do not go listen to talk radio to get the straight hard facts without here. You go to hear the opinions. That's why you can pick and choose. It's not like you're turning on the five o'clock news on ABC, CBS, or NBC where you expect just to get the straight facts. So there should also be some sort of limit to what this is a person's opinion, and people know that when they listen to talk radio. And a talk radio host should make sure that they are honest with themselves, saying, here's the facts and here's the opinions. So this is also another issue that's going to be going moving forward. We're going to see, because Alex Jones, I do believe, was one of the first mediums to suffer, media mediums to suffer cancellation. And they won with him. They just started, they, they've built. And I think this is why you're seeing places like Newsmax, One America, uh, even Fox News to a certain extent, going very left, using the same talking points as George Soros and Joe Biden at this point regarding the conflict um, in Russia and Ukraine, because they see how this is going and they don't want to go down the same road that many of us have already had to deal with. Yeah. But then you see people, Scotty, saying, you know, like if if the media can't be held accountable because they want to 
say it's freedom of the press and, you know, freedom of speech and what have you. But then you have people comparing that to the police-related shootings. And they say, well, that's why police should also be held accountable for their actions when they're, you know, trying to arrest somebody. I mean, we just had one happen uh, literally pop up a week or two ago in, in was it Minnesota again? You- I think so. But I could be wrong. I don't, I know, I know what happened. I don't remember the location. Yeah. Right. Patrick Loya, his name. Um, but, you know, there are lawsuits out there saying that the police should also be held accountable for their actions when they're on the, on the clock. So it's kind of, we're in a, in a dicey place. I feel like, like, yes, on the one hand, I do believe there, the media bears accountability, bears some culpability about shaping things and what they say, and they should be responsible. They should be. But you know what? We're in the 21st century where media ethics is out the freaking window. Let me ask you both a question. It, uh, Reporters Without Borders just came out with a new survey of freedom of the press in countries. What, what, first of all, what do you think is the number one country in the world that has the most, is considered to be the most um, adaptable to having freedom of the press and freedom of speech? Oh, that I don't know. Not off the top of my head. I don't know that one. Just come, come up with a guess. What, what do you think? What, what country in the world can, you, can the press have the most freedom? Oh, man. I don't know. I don't even know where to go with I'm that gonna one. I'm going to say Sri Lanka. You're close. <laughs> oh, is she? Your first, exactly. Your first four places. Now, granted, they're very cold. And I mean, cold in temperature. So maybe, you know, it's hard to have an argument. But we're talking about Norway, Finland, um, Sweden, and uh, Norway, Finland, Sweden, and Denmark. I was thinking Denmark. Oh. Those are your top four that have free of the press. Yeah, Sri Lanka is much closer than saying the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have thought U.S. I mean, we're, you know, for God's sake, we're trying to put Assange in prison. Well, that's that's the that's the point I wanted to make. So, where where do you think the U.S. stands? And this is Reporters Without Borders. Where do you think the U.S. stands? We would have to be somewhere near the bottom. I mean, just by, I, I would think we would have to be somewhere near the bottom. Don't get me wrong. If you ask the people here, meaning the press here, they think they're doing a great job. Ask <laughs> Brian Stelter, you know, where he was like, "Oh no, I, I have no idea what network you're talking about." You know, where we're just going to put in our propaganda. Um, I would say we're probably somewhere near the bottom. We are 44. Out of how many? Fourth. And con- uh, out of uh, the whole world. But let me tell you the countries that beat us. And this is what I found to be surprising. Um, 13th is Germany. I mean, let's just talk about it. In the century, we had Nazis in Germany controlling everything. And Germany has more freedom of the press than the U.S. does right now. Um, 33 is the United Kingdom. The U.K., they have Ofcom. I've never seen a more governance board, but they have more freedom than we do. 32, South Africa. 43 is South Korea. Really? 40th is the Czech Republic. So guess what, U.S., despite us having it in our Constitution, despite it being one of our benchmarks that we, that we hope that recruits people from around the world that we've had since the day the U.S. was founded, we are one of the worst and guaranteeing that freedom. And there is something really wrong about that. And the Julian Assange situation is one of the main reasons why we rank so low. Is because we went from pro- using this Espionage Act, which is once again coming up, to prosecute those that were going against the war, that were trying to uh, hurt recruitment during World War I, to using it against actual whistleblowers. And there's a big difference between going against between the two. 
And that is a problem we have in America today that every member of Congress should be asked about on the campaign trail this year is where do you stand on the U.S. Espionage Act? Should it be reformed? Because it hasn't been reformed since 1917. And keep in mind, Obama was using that to get rid of whistleblowers left and right. I mean, like, never used um, in that capacity in the way he used it. I think it was like out of the entire time um, over the course of his entire lifespan, Obama used it like, what, half or something to that effect? I don't remember the exact number, but I do know there was like three or four people that he basically used it on. Um, so, yeah, you, a great point, um, Scotty. One of the things I want to get to also, speaking about Obama. So President Biden has told former President Barack Obama that he is planning to run for reelection in 2024. Two sources tell The Hill. The admission to Obama is the latest indication that Biden is likely to run for a second term, something the president has spoken about publicly. I think this is farcical. There's no way. No, I think that's a deliberate, like, he's having his his media people spin this because yeah. you have to, right, Scotty? I mean, we're coming up to the midterms. You are the leader of, of the Democratic Party by default, and the Democratic Party owns both houses. So you have to project some sort of strength right out there to the party, like, oh, I'm definitely going to run again, sources say. <laughs> but because we know that that the Democrats are in danger this fall. Oh, yeah. They're in both houses. There are a lot of seats up for grabs. And they the Democrats are are polling terribly. Joe Biden is polling the, I think, the worst in, in modern history With for any, of Trump. any president. Like, I mean, even worse than Trump? Is that what you're No, saying? no, except Trump. Oh, except it's like Trump. Trump was, if I remember correctly, is the worst with the exception of Trump. So He's not the well. last two presidents are polling the worst ever. So that's not looking good. So I, I feel like, Scotty, I don't know if you agree with me, but I feel like they are leaking out that story. And leak is in air quotes. It, they're leaking this story out that, of course, President Biden is going to run again. He's, I mean, look how well he's doing physically, mentally. Uh, and everybody just loves him. Of course he's running again. Do you think, I mean, do you think that's what it is, Scotty? They're just spinning it so that way it's to project, you know, like a sense of strong leadership. Listen, I don't know what you two are talking about. <laughs> biggest Joe Biden fan right now there could ever be. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Biden sign in my yard. Because coming from a more conservative standpoint, if I'm going to have a Democrat in the White House, I would much rather have someone that's led around by a white bunny, a man in a bunny suit, than Kamala Harris sitting there with the nuclear button True. at her fingertips. So, uh, you know, I, I don't care what Biden's having to do to have self-preservation. It's not about 2024 to him. It's about actually being able to stay in office and not being removed in the next two years by his own party. That, you know, I, you're right, it's, Manila, it's 100% a PR move, but it's not even about the next election. It's going, guys, please do not take me out even before then, which after the midterms come through could be very, very likely. That's the whole thing I'm laughing about. These Republicans are going, oh, we're going to impeach Joe Biden when we take control of the House and the Congress. I'm like, you're not going to be able to have to impeach him because you won't have him as president. He won't be there anymore. His own party will take care of him. You think so? You think so? You're going to have to do something. I, I didn't think it was going to last this long. I was surprised by it. But I think the Democrats realize they're going to have such a devastating loss, possibly. The Republicans, they always find a way of screwing themselves up. So, Well, I, I gave Joe two, two years at least. Gave him two years? I gave him at least 50% of his term uh -huh. before ultimately the 
I think this the is rigors always, of the office. The, I, yeah. I believe all along that Kamala Harris was intended to take the spot. Same here. Same here. And I know it's a very cynical view. No, I don't think it is. But, but I, I think because she, but she, folks, she was unwinnable in my home state, her home state in California. Yes. They hated her in California. She couldn't win California. So they know damn well she wasn't going to win the general. She didn't even make it to Iowa. Right. So, Just to be clear. Right. You know? So, I mean, Bernie trounced all over her. Yes. But in order to shoehorn her in, let's have her and Joe make nice, mm-hmm. put her on the ticket. And, and Joe, I guess, is, was winnable to, yeah. the, to the party. So they put him in the front. And I think the plan all along was to get Kamala in there, Scotty. I hate to break it to you. I think Kamala Harris was the person in the bunny suit. Believing <laughs> that one at this point. I don't know. You're giving her a lot of credit. I mean, have you heard some of her speeches? You've you've heard them. I mean, she's saying words that don't make a sentence. And the bunny suit didn't talk. <laughs> the, the bunny suit didn't need to talk, right? I mean, she was all over the place. I mean, I, I agree with Manila on this, uh, that their thought was, okay, we need to take out Sanders, but we need continuity in office. And if it's not going to be Hillary, I would imagine the same donors and everything else that was backing Hillary were probably behind Kamala Harris. And the thought was that Biden would be a transitional candidate. If I remember correctly, Biden even used those terms or transitional or something to that effect to a new generation. Um, the problem is Kamala Harris, of course, was 10 points less popular than Biden, which oh. makes that nearly, you know, it's like, I don't know how that works now. OK, you tried to shoehorn her in basically by wedging her in with Biden. On the ticket. On the ticket. Just put her on. Just just put her on. Just if put anything her there, happens Joe. to Biden, at the very least, she's wedged in and you were giving her what a wisp of a man. And at this point. You know, if you look at Obama, if you look at George Bush, they aged tremendously in that office. Oh, God. I mean, they looked like all of the of the hell itself was basically showing on their face. Trump was the only person who basically got yeah. out of it somehow unscathed. I have no idea how. But Biden will not. And Biden looks rough already. And this has only been a year. It he feels was like rough it's been going longer. in. Going in. And so it's like, what does it mean? I guess my question is, if it's not Biden, who? I, I don't have an answer for that. It's not going to be Buttigieg. It's not going to be Warren. Scotty, what are your thoughts? Well, let me point something out real quick about this. Joe Biden being elected was not about Biden and his policies moving forward. It was about Sanders. Here's the problem. When Obama, when Hillary lost, it was a huge blow to the Democrats, but it was also a blow, I do believe, to Obama's legacy. If he was such a great president, then it should have been a shoe-in for Hillary Clinton. So the only way that you could help restore or repair that Obama legacy was, hello, the second guy that was under Obama the whole time. So Biden getting in basically to the Democrats in their own little sphere said, look, we weren't that bad. It was obvious that the Russians got Trump elected in 2016, but in a legitimate election, you know, where you have, you know, mail-in votes and, you know, disappearing boxes, Biden was reelected overwhelmingly even more popular than anybody else. Biden is just a continuation of Obama. So Obama wasn't that bad. Everybody loves Obama. This was healing a narrative. It was a PR move. And they knew that whatever the reason, I do agree that he was brought in to put Kamala Harris in because I do believe Kamala is just as much a puppet as Joe Biden is. The question is, who's pulling the strings? It used to be the Clintons behind the scenes. 
I do believe now the Obamas are the, the puppet masters, even uh, at least politically. They also probably have their strings being pulled as well. Um, all of these, though, don't don't think that this is just, you know, another series for Netflix. All of this is a, a part of the plan. Even when you're like, oh, how could this happen? This is all a part of the plan. The problem we have as Americans today is we need to figure out as a society what the next step is and try to go the opposite direction, whatever that might be. Because right now, everything we're doing is just falling right into place. And you're seeing that with the Biden administration and all of their agenda items that they're getting pushed. And they're making Biden take the fall for their very radical agenda, which is their goal. So then they can blame it all on Biden. Biden might go, but the laws and the agenda will stay in place. I'll tell you who I think the DNC, they don't have a very deep bench for 2024. um, But I I know because I'm a Californian and I've watched state politics for a long time in in my home state, Gavin Newsom has been eyeing that position. Oh, yeah. God, he's he's been groomed to do this. Right. I mean, he's Nancy Pelosi's nephew. He's raised in politics. He was groomed to work his way up state politics. And he has been eyeballing 2024, maybe 2028 for a very long time um, as well as the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. I mean, he's lesser known. He's well-known in California, lesser known. But these are, I mean, that that's your bench? You got Eric Garcetti and Gavin Newsom? I think there's one more person, Hillary Clinton. Is it her Ugh. turn? Is it her turn? If you think about it, Trump is going to run, more likely than not. Yes. Biden doesn't seem like he can carry the burden. I don't even think Biden is going to make it two years, let alone, you know, make it through the next um, term. And then it's like Kamala Harris is radically unpopular. I don't know any other Democrats that basically pop up in that way. And you have a lot of people who believe that Hillary Clinton was cheated, especially among uh, Democrats, especially uh, among Democrats. Let me let me throw one spoiler in there. Uh-huh. If just for fun, because in the entertainment world, people are, you know, saying this. Yeah. Joe Rogan, 2024. Interesting. Scotty, what are your thoughts on this one? Clinton or Rogan, 2024? No, but he would be the, the an in, independent. independent. Yeah. But he would be the spoiler, yeah. like, like they always say third parties are. Has he said anything about this at all? He hasn't said no, but he <laughs> jokes about it. I mean, he's a comedian at heart, yeah. right? So he's touched on it, but he's joking. So is it like, is it possible? Yeah. Scotty, what do you think? Joe Rogan and Dave Pomeroy, probably a barstool of the vice president. <laughs> We're just going to turn into one big spring break 88 Daytona Beach here in the U.S. Yes. Uh, and so the problem is, is Joe, I don't, the difference between Joe Rogan and Donald Trump is Donald Trump, yes, how we can debate how he got his money. He was a diversified, successful businessman um, in several different areas. Joe Rogan has done a podcast. It's been very successful. He's fought freedom of speech. The problem even with the Joe Rogan is that um, from the if you're outside the Democratic Party, the no one's going to run as long as Trump is in that could actually beat a Democrat. You're not going to have Mitt, Mitt Romney throwing his name out there. You're going to, you know, uh, Nikki Haley. They're, they're not going to do it. Tim Scott, none of them are going to be able to beat any Democrats. They just, the Republicans will not rally behind them. The conservatives will not get behind them. The independents will not come over to them. And that's something the Democrats are banking on. From the perspective of Trump, he, you know, he's now showing that he's all in. He's made some very poor choices, um, as we've recently found out in the last 24 hours in my home state, regarding his, who he's backing. And he's getting a lot of flack from his own party. 
as long as Trump is in. Now, if Trump goes away and you have somebody like a Governor DeSantis, who is extremely popular right now within the Republican Party, then there is a chance that the Republicans will be able to take over the Oval Office in in two years. But as long as Trump is in, I'm not so sure as much as he kills the MAGA people. Interesting. So you don't think Trump could take it? I mean, like, even if it was against a Biden or against a Clinton, you think Trump was still loose? Trump, uh, it would be up. Uh, the reason why Trump won in 2016, it wasn't the conservatives that got him elected. It wasn't the Republicans. It was those independents who had hope that it was going to be different from the last eight years. It was those independents that had lost their insurance. It was those independents that had lost their jobs to foreign co- move, companies that moved across seas. You've got to be able to get those independents who want to see strength and a dramatic change. We know Trump is now coming into this with a track record, with a voting record, and it's not really the best one. Uh, mainly because of his own party that spoiled, especially the first two years of his agenda. That being said, so he came into in 2016 with a lot of hopes and dreams and independence. Listen to him. You cannot run. You cannot win these days just strictly along your party lines, because as Republicans, the Mitt Romney, the 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 more liberal wing of the Republican Party will not vote for Trump again. They will do exactly what they did before and either stay home or go across the line and vote for the Democrats. So you've got to have some fresh blood come in here at this stage. Interesting. Scotty, thank you for this. Um, always. Enjoy Hi, you coming you. on. I love you. I know, right? Um, co-host for, I mean, the RT family. Scotty Nell Hughes is a political commentator, commentator and journalist that hosts or used to host News Views Hughes on RT. Man, yeah, always feel some kind of way about that. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment with the one and only John Kiriakou. I see him in the office. I see him here. Um, but we'll be back in a moment. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And you guys, anybody that can see, can see him over there, the one and only John Kariaku. Johnny K. Johnny K. Johnny K is a former CIA officer, co-host of Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik and author of books including The CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis, The Reluctant Spy. John, how's it going this morning? Doing all right? Doing pretty well, thanks. How are you? So far, so good. Um, I sent John a text message very late last night after I was reading the article coming out about intelligence being shared um, with Ukraine on the issue of the Donbass region and Crimea. And of course... Before we get jump into that, I, I would like to know Johnny K's thoughts on the Assange thing yes. happening oh, yeah. this morning before we dive Absolutely. into the rest of it yeah. being Ukraine. So there was a video hearing this morning. Uh, Julian, of course, participated from Belmarsh Prison and, uh, and his extradition was formally sent by the court to the, uh, the home office. Now, um, Home Secretary Priti Patel will um, most likely you know, choose to extradite him. I've been getting a lot of calls lately from uh, Julian's attorneys here in the United States. Yeah. Uh, You say you've been getting calls? Calls, yeah. Um, They're preparing his defense, and they're under no illusions whatsoever. They know it's rigged. That he is not going to be uh, extradited. They they believe he'll be here by the end of the month. Oh, wow. Yeah, we have an over 90% extradition rate when when it comes to— the U.S. asking the U.K. 
hey, send us that guy. There's, it's an over 90% rate. And then when they do get extradited UK to the US, we have a 96% conviction rate. So it's almost a, a done deal in. in a weird way. I'm curious, you made the point once before that regardless of what they promise Assange in this case, they're not going to get it or they're not going to be able to do it. The Bureau no. of Prisons are the ones that make the determination. No, the, the fix is in. Yeah. Exactly. The fix is in. You know, when you've got a, when you've got a Justice Department uh, prosecutor going to a foreign court and saying, you know, you have our word. We're not going to send him to solitary. It's not up to the prosecutors to decide who goes to solitary and who doesn't. It is solely up to the discretion of the Bureau of Prisons. And even then, it's up to the discretion of each individual warden. And so all someone has to do for Julian to go to solitary, promises aside, is walk up to any prison guard in the prison and say, I just heard somebody threaten Julian Assange. And that's all they need for it. That's it. And then, quote unquote, for his own safety... They'll put him in solitary and they'll leave him there. Whether it's real or not. That's it. Doesn't matter. No, doesn't matter. And wow. no word from Australia yet because, you know, remember, they no, the said— the Australians are cowards. Right. They, they said— Put it mildly. They said, oh, we're, we'll let him, the U.S. prosecutors, that is, said, we'll let him go back to his home country. The Aussies haven't been formally asked Mm-mm. by the U.S. No, no. Mm-mm. And they haven't necessarily— injected themselves into the conversation one way or the other. And, you know, part of this extradition agreement we have with the, uh, with the Brits is that they cannot extradite people to the United States who have been accused of political crimes. If this isn't a political crime, I don't know what the heck is. Yeah, the, the fix is in on this. I mean, it's appalling. I mean, they basically tortured the guy for the last eight years in the yeah. public light. And I've made the point before that the entire point of the public torture was to get across this is what happens when you run afoul of us. And yeah, it's, it's appalling. Yes. Um, I want to move to the issue of the Donbass and Crimea. And Crimea. So Russia considers Crimea its own territory, meaning this is ours. And even though Donbass, yes, it may be in dispute, initially with the Donbass republics, they were trying to remain within the context of Ukraine, even though they were going to be more autonomous regions. So oftentimes when there's like, oh, Russia invaded into... Nonsense. Those regions, the Minsk agreements was for them to be autonomous within the context of Ukraine. So that doesn't apply. Crimea, however, is considered by Russia to be theirs. Yes. And so if we are given intelligence with this idea of launching attacks, then Russia is considering that attacks on their home territory. That's a big deal. Now, what yeah. does this mean in practice from the standpoint of we're going to share intelligence? Like, what, is, what does that look like? And how is yeah. that intelligence given in order to be used in the first that, place? That's a good question. You know, the, the United States has a special relationship with the Five Eyes countries. That's Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. They share literally everything with one another, literally everything, even source material. They don't share intelligence like that with any other country in the world. So what they, they do share some intelligence with most countries. So what they would be sharing with Ukraine on a normal basis, the war aside, is every day a liaison officer will go from the CIA's office in Kiev to the Ukrainian intelligence service for the normal exchange of intelligence. And he'll say, here's the morning national intelligence daily. Um, There's an article on uh, uh, dispute between Rwanda and Burundi. There's an update on humanitarian issues in Haiti. 
there's uh, uh, some speculation about North Korea's next missile test. Okay, nobody cares about that. I mean, nobody in Ukraine is going to care about that stuff. But this is part of the normal intelligence exchange. And then the Ukrainians will give to the United States, oh, we caught this uh, Russian saboteur, and this is a, a readout of his interrogation. Okay, CIA files it, sends it back home. The Ukrainians likely toss what we gave them in the garbage because none of it is important to them. That's the normal intelligence exchange. Um, what this is going to be upgraded to is tactical intelligence, battlefield intelligence. So this is going to be overhead imagery. It's going to be probably intercepts of Russian communications. It's going to be stuff that's going to allow the Ukrainians to identify the location and the strength of Russian troops. This, this is different. It's serious. So this is, this is intelligence that the Ukrainians are going to be able to use to fight and to kill Russians. Not just normal BS kind of intelligence that nobody cares about. Wow. That is, yeah, that's grim. I mean, what, kind of, what kind of Russian response do you expect to see come out of this, John? See, this, is, this puts the Russians in a tough position because the U.S. isn't a combatant, technically. Right. And so the Russians have to have assumed that the U.S. was providing intelligence of some yeah. sort some from, the, from the beginning. Sure. There's really nothing the Russians can do. And, you know, this isn't an unusual situation. During the Iran-Iraq war, the U.S.'s interest was in, in having them fight forever and just destroy each other. So what, what we did was we gave intelligence, battlefield intelligence, to both sides. We gave imagery to the Iranians showing Iraqi troop concentrations, and we gave the Iraqis imagery showing Iranian troop concentrations wow. so they could kill each other. And keep killing each other because that was in our interest. Right, that, that was the original U.S. interest during World War II, which is why it took us so long mm -hmm. to take part because we, we, the U.S., was watching how the Soviets were playing sometimes nice, exactly. sometimes not nice with Hitler. That's right. And we wanted them to destroy each other. And then when Hitler broke the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, Pact, yeah. uh, the pact agreement, yeah. uh, that was great. We were perfectly happy to watch them destroy each other. Yeah, we let them basically mm -hmm. almost get to the point of taking Berlin, at which point it was like, oh, oh yeah, let's, oh, let's get involved now. Step in. Yeah, let's and, get involved yeah, now. Pearl Harbor was what forced our hand. Yeah. And then we're like, oh, That's guess exactly I got, right. guess we got to pick a side. In fact, after Pearl Harbor, we didn't even declare war on Germany. Hitler the Germans did. declared yes. war on us. Right. Yeah, that allowed FDR to basically get into it because for the right. longest time we had an anti-interventionist nation. Yep. I mean, but at that point he was arming Lynn Lease. Sure. And that's come back for Ukraine. Yes. I mean, well, they basically, with well, the Senate, is passed the Lend-Lease bill yes, to Ukraine. Indeed. It's like, do they expect Ukraine to pay it back? I mean, so what's going on with that? That like, stuff's never paid back. Well, Russia paid back in, what, in, in gold. Britain paid back in, what, in the 80s or something to that yes. effect? Yeah. I mean, so it's just very weird, man. John, thank you for this, man. I My appreciate pleasure. this. Yeah, I just— A little bit I, of insight. Yeah, because I didn't understand, like, this kind of, okay, what does this look like in practice? What does this look like on the ground? How's—it was that type of stuff, and you have clear insight on that stuff in a way that— I don't. Thank so. you, sir. Very cool. John Kariaku, former CIA officer, co-host of uh, Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik at 12 to 2 p.m., author of such books, including The CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis and Reluctant Spy. And of course, you can follow John on Twitter at 
John Kariaku and learn more about him at johnkariaku.com. Johnny K, generally a good guy all around. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Always you, enjoy these conversations. John, thank you, my man. Thank you. All righty. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back for the last hour. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your burning ember in the darkness, your political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And we're trying out the Thrilla in Manila. The Manila in Thrilla. The Thrilla. The Manila and Manila Thrilla. Thrill- no, Manila Thrill- Thrill is still too short. <laughs> Thrilla and Manila. We'll, that means we'll try that out. you guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and the Thrilla. The Thrilla. And Ma- I thought it was something else. It was Manila. Oh, Manila the Thrilla. Manila the Thrilla. I like Manila the Thrilla. We'll ask the audience because they a consensus is good. Yes. Yes. A consensus uh, audience be like, yeah, let's go with this let's, one. Let's vote on this. But let's do headlines. Let's get into some headlines. You want to go through them or you want me to read Either one is perfectly fine. I would like to do the space ones if you don't mind. Absolutely. But I'll let you do all the hot topics first. Okay, let's There's do that. There's a lot of space stories today, which is there, weird. I love space stories. I, I am too. a sucker for those. But yeah. it's just like, it's weird that today on 420. Yes. That all these space, space <laughs> right. and alien stories are out there. And we're like, did y'all do this on purpose? It's like getting high talking about something that's high. Right. It's space cadets. You know, Return of the Space Cowboy. Yeah, like this perfect timing. Love it. So let's get into the news. In the news, one of the morbid stories, the London court made a formal decision to extradite Julian Assange to the United States on Wednesday. However, the final decision is to be made by the UK government. WikiLeaks tweeted that the defense team has until May 18th to challenge the decision before Secretary Priti Patel makes the decision on the ruling. Should he be extradited to the United States where he's accused of espionage, Assange faces up to 175 years behind bars. Man, that is spiriting. In COVID news, the Biden administration said on Tuesday that it would likely appeal a recent court decision by the Florida federal judge to end the COVID-19 related mask mandates on public transportation. The Department of Justice said they, quote, disagree with the district court's decision and would appeal subject to CDC's conclusion that the order remains necessary for public health. Unquote. This I'm is let, where I want to insert the Greta Thunberg. Yeah. How dare you? It is going to be Sound very like. weird for them to be like, okay, you don't need a mask. Okay, now you need a mask back. How dare you? <laughs> she's her arms. So she's you know screaming at them. Um, in national news, on Tuesday, the Department of Education announced major changes to student loan repayment programs designed to address what it described as, quote, longstanding failures. Yes, uh, dramatically so. The program will provide immediate forgiveness to some 40,000 borrowers and give another 3.6 million borrowers at least three years of additional credit towards income-driven repayment forgiveness, which can be, take a total of 20 to 25 years of payment. You get an education, yes, partially for yourself, but also for your nation and for your country itself, because whatever education you get, it benefits the larger public. You should want an educated population, and that population having the ability to close um, for different businesses, for different companies. All of those things contribute and add to your society. No, I got mixed feelings about that. Oh, I don't. I am very clear on that part. I'm, I, because 
because U.S. education, the state of U.S. education has fallen so far down. I mean, we were talking with Scotty last yeah. hour about where the U.S. stands on on um, freedom of speech, mm-hmm. and we were like number forty-four or something. We're similar in education now. We used yeah. to be the shining example as number one, yeah, right in the twentieth century. Not so much is the case anymore. And I'll tell you, it's because everybody's getting, and this is coming from somebody with a liberal arts degree, everybody's getting liberal arts degrees. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough nurses. Right. We don't have enough engineers. And less education is the way to get there? No, no. What I'm saying is, yeah. the hear me out. If you get educated in those fields, good Lord, we have enough lawyers in this country. Stop going to law school. <laughs> Stop going to law school and then realizing you hate it. And then you're at Starbucks, you're a barista with an... A, an amazing law degree. Right, with a fantastic <laughs> right. law degree from some very expensive school out there. Don't get your JD and then realize you hate it. Uh, but those who major in stuff like medicine, a STEM field, uh-huh. right? Because this country is woefully understaffed with people in medicine and engineering and things like that. We should allow those people the free education to bump up the numbers. Agreed. But if you're going to be majoring in like, I'm not saying, right, like I'm not saying art's not important or whatever, but that's, that. That if I'm paying for it. But our tax dollars are paying, if we're going to pay for something and and like to your point that it's going to be for the greater good of this nation, well, right now there's a, a high, high need for doctors and nurses and engineers Agreed. and scientists. Agreed. Because we're falling woefully behind everybody. Thousand percent agree with you so on this. So yeah. look up those people with that kind of education. And you know what, Jamarl? Because I don't want to pay for art degree. Brown kids and black kids, the thing that's holding them up from getting the higher education is they see no path into, number one, getting there. And number two, when they do get there, how the hell are they going to pay for it? You're going to spend 25 years, and that's assuming things go well. I mean, that's right. assuming you get the good job. That's assuming that you get the money to pay. I mean, it's appalling. I've I agree with you. I've still got student loan debt. Yeah, same because, here. again, majoring in liberal arts, there's not a whole lot you can do with it yeah. that will pay the bills. So I am in my 40s, and yeah. I still have student, not a lot, but student loan debt. Yeah. Because I had to push the pause button so many times mm-hmm. because there's not a whole lot of ways you can earn money if you're really trying to get this degree and you starve as a reporter. And think about it. What are the chances that you end up on radio or TV? Right. I mean, it's mo- very slim. Yeah, very slim. So it's not a situation where it's like, okay, you get this. Imp- and then even think of the course of times over a period of life where nothing goes wrong in that life. Right. And life happens. Life happens. Life happens to you. People die. Yeah. You know, like houses burn down. Horrible things happen, right? Yeah. So if, if you don't have, yes, like every Asian parent stresses on their kid, doctor, lawyer, accountant, something. But there's a reason for that. Yeah. Because they're fail-safes. And, and lo and behold, now that this country is where it's at, we are short, we are short doctors, yeah. engineers, nurses. We tend to import a lot of them when really, if you're paying for them here, we're you can grow for, them here. We're paying for people to to learn women's studies. Yes, I get that's important, but how many damn sociologists do you need out there? <laughs> no, I, I think I agree with you on that. I, I, You know, the public shouldn't have to pay for our degree. From the standpoint of a doctor, yes. Yes. Scientists, yes. Yes. Like those things can be legitimate or justified. Kids from China are coming here 
getting the education and going back. Yes. Like, thanks for the education. Right. Or, for that matter, we're bringing people into the country that have been able to get education from other countries and stuff right. like that. Meaning we're they importing had, the doctors. Exactly. Exactly. So, no, I, I think we have agreement on this one. Um, yeah, I think we have agreement Hook on this one. Hook up some people. Yeah. And I get it. If you're going to major in something weird like underwater basket weaving, <laughs> you're going to have to pay for that, buddy. Pay for that yourself. I'll pay for the basics if it's like, um, let's say, basic schooling and everything else. But the point you get a major in the start. Right. Yeah, yeah. You handle your don't, don't need any underwater basket weavers. Not so much. Not so much. There's a, yeah, yeah, we don't need those. <laughs> we don't need we those. We can agree. <laughs> um, let's keep going. Mexico quietly disbanded the elite special anti-narcotics unit that has worked with the DEA for the past 25 years, according to a report by Reuters. The DEA was informed that the unit's disbanding back in April 21st. April 2021, but the announcement was not made publicly. Interesting. I wonder why. Hmm? I wonder why. That it wasn't made publicly? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I mean, you would think that, yeah, I don't know why. That's a good question. Why do they keep that information to themselves as opposed to just kind of... should we know that the DEA is not working with them anymore? You would think, I mean, this was one of those things where it's like the DEA, you know, has all of these relationships all around the world or the countries and everything else and creates all sorts of habit. Don't tell them we broke up. I went as this Omlo. Omlo was like, yeah, don't let people know yet. Don't let them know. I'm not ready to deal with the breakup talk. Yeah. I think that's That's interesting. I mean, because the U.S. government would have known that they broke up. So it's like if nothing... No. You don't think the U.S. government would have known that Mexico broke up with them? No. Jamaro, do you know how dysfunctional this government, like the government is so big and so great. Uh-huh. Left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing at least 50% of the time. And I could tell you because I have sources who work in various branches yeah. of the government. And because I'm hearing the talk from all these different agencies and entities, yeah. I start thinking like, Wait, but so and so just told me this, and then so and so told me that. Like, it's like they don't know what each other right. knows. They yeah. don't know that we don't know that they don't know. Oh, that's creepy. Yes, that's so, very creepy. So that's you know when when oftentimes when there's that talk about you know oh well there's um, the government is planning this or that eh, half the time that's maybe more than half is not true. The yeah. stuff the stuff that you think is nefariously happening just incompetent. It's pure incompetence. It's not a nefarious plan. It's wow. it's pure incompetence. It's because they're not communicating with each other. And then we feel the effects mm-hmm. as being the regular people. And we start thinking to ourselves, they're smarter than what they actually right. are because no. nobody could be that stupid. No. Yeah. They all have the fancy degrees. They all have pedigrees, you know, from, you know, Harvard or Stanford or whatever. Yeah. No, no. It amounts to a hill of beans. <laughs> uh, can we'll I do this next yeah, one here? Yeah, go for it. Okay, this is what... I'm going to jump the gun here and, and announce that today is 420. Um, and so it's a good time to talk about how Oxford scientists have warned that a plan by NASA to broadcast Earth's location into outer space may prompt far-reaching consequences, including dun, 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 a possible alien invasion. Anders... Sandberg, a senior research fellow at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute, the FHI, told the Daily Telegraph that beaming information about the solar system, Earth's surface, and humanity may pose a substantial risk. He claims that even though the chance of such a message reaching an alien civilization might be low, he says, quote, 
It has such a high impact that you actually need to take it rather seriously. And that's probably in a British accent, so it's very serious. Yeah, yeah. Very, you know. That, very, very, very serious. British-y. And then, um, this is that um, argument by Batman argument. Batman. Like, well, when Batman was talking about Superman and he was like, yeah, yeah, Superman would be good now, but what if he goes off the rails? Even if it was like a point zero 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 one percent that he goes off the rails, what could Superman do to Earth? Oh, and so we must neutralize Superman because if there's a point zero 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 one percent, I think his point is if there's even a chance that something else can see it and then end up on Earth. We have no idea of value system. We have no idea of civilization. We have no idea any of those things. We're just putting it out there. But look, I like it because I think it's a hopeful message. It's humanity putting out this kind of hope into the cosmos. Pinging, pinging out into the cosmos? Pretty much. It's like something may be out there. Like these are our coordinates. Because we're not, I mean, it's not a cynical send, right? If it was cynical, we wouldn't send it. If you think about it. I don't know. I've seen Independence Day. Will Smith, we know, is the champion of women and hair. And he can slap the hell out of people. Right. He, and so if those aliens come. Slap. Yep. That's right. Smack them. It's like, how dare you come to this planet? Smack them. Right. So, you know, there's, well, I don't know. I think we're safe. We got Smith. I think, personally, is that if NASA is, is planning this to ping out there, they already know more than what they're telling us. Because the, the basic rule goes that if the anyone in the in a government agency, a government body, uh-huh. makes anything public, it's usually already been cooking for four or five years. Yeah. They've already known about something. So to me, if you're going to be pinging Earth's location and, you know, like here's our topography and whatever out into space... I feel like they know something that there's somebody uh-huh. out there that can receive it. I think. See, the thing is, though, if there was somebody out there that could receive it, those people would already know. I would imagine, wouldn't they? I mean, no, like, if it's a situation where they were like, I mean, like, because otherwise, who are they sending it to? Well, and, and how far? Where is it? Pinging? And that's the other thing: the speed at which it goes. I mean, even if it was going at speed of light, it would take, you know. God knows how long in right. order to get to other soaps just the next star. Yeah. Right. I mean, who knows? But that's, I, I don't know. I just, I find I find that. Interesting. And like I said, they sent it off once before. The record with the, you know, human being on it. And then they had the commentary and stuff like that in the various languages and music. I think they had like jazz and all this other stuff on it. So they've done something like this in the past. And now speaking of space, NASA uh, knows that Hubble is coming to the end of its life. The data it's gathered over the decades, still paying dividends. Uh, they just they just discovered a galaxy that they think might be the missing link, and hopefully they come up with a better name than G N Z seven Q. That name is awesome. Is it Gunza seven K? Astronomers believe the galaxy has a rapidly growing black hole at its center and might explain how supermassive black holes that have the mass of millions or billions of times larger than our sun can grow so quickly. So Hubble is delivering some pretty cool stuff still. Very cool. It's been up there for a while, and the pictures are astonishingly um, good. It's kind of heady to get your head around. Yeah. Like the size and scale of some of the stuff that's out there. Some of that Hubble technology in the iPhone. Yeah. You know, for you to, the camera, as good as it is, and I, you're an Android user, I know. But the, gosh, the Google Pixel, jeez. Mm-hmm. 
really nice. But it's the lenses and stuff, the technology that NASA oh, right, uses. Oh, right, right, that they were using in space, the miniaturization and, and all this in other stuff. Yeah, that we have in our hands now. Isn't it so well? So we have well, a little piece of NASA in What's his hands? name? Neil deGrasse Tyson used to point that out all the time, that it's like, look, the space stuff has consequences down on Earth. It's not just this kind of wonder and this looking up for this larger questions. It's also technology. Um, but you guys are listening. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chance. Um, we have a guest, and she was nice enough. The, nice enough. I can't get my words out. She was nice enough to come on. And so let's take a quick break. Let's come back, and we're going to have a conversation with Misty Winston. And she is going to be talking about Julian Assange. We bring her on all the time to have updates on Assange, and today is one of those days. So you guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with my co-host Manila Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And as we were having the conversation earlier about Julian Assange, we had it with John Kariaku, but we're going to get into it in earnest um, right now. And of course, it came out this morning that Julian Assange will be extradited to the United States, providing Pretty Patel comes out and basically gives the okay to do so. And as and Manila, yeah, as Manila kind of made the point, this is usually a lock at this point to the sum of 90% or more. And at the point where people get extradited to the United States and get convicted, the conviction rate is over 90% also. So this is a dark day any way you want to cut it. Um, we have a guest joining us who often joins us to talk about Julian Assange. We have Misty Winston. She's a political activist, organizer, and co-host of both Facts on the Ground podcasts and free Assange visuals. Misty, difficult day. What are your thoughts? Well, first, welcome to the show. First, I should say hello first. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. I always appreciate you guys having me on. Um, it is a dark day. You're right. This is, um, you know, we kind of knew it was coming. We knew that once the uh, Supreme Court uh, refused to hear the appeal that this was probably going to be the direction that we were headed in. So, um, I mean, we all kind of were expecting it, but it is a very dark day. Uh, and it's, I mean, we just have to redouble our efforts, I guess. It's yeah, really the it's only thing that we can do at can this point. Can you go through what basically took place this morning? So there was a hearing this morning, um, if, as I understand it. Essentially what happened was, is, uh, as I just said, the Supreme Court, uh, recently refused to hear the appeal, um, uh, of Julian Assange. Um, and so it went back to the Westminster Magistrates Court, um, which essentially this was just like a, a procedural thing. They just uh, they were just going to like sign off on it. And then it goes to UK Home Secretary Priti Patel. Um, so that hearing was this morning at 10, 15 a.m. local time. Uh, there was a, a great many activists outside the Westminster Magistrates Court trying to raise, uh, you know, change public opinion and try to sway Priti Patel um, and her decision making on this issue. Um, but it does now go to uh, UK Home Secretary Priti Patel, the uh, defense has about four weeks until May 18th to submit um, uh, some documentation stuff. Just essentially things, they're going to try to sway her opinion. They're going to try to convince her to deny this extra, uh, extradition. Um, so they have until May 18th to do that. And then really at any time she can make a ruling. So we don't really have a set date or anything like that. Um, it could happen, you know, that day. It could happen weeks from then. We don't I'm really curious, know for sure. From your standpoint, what are your thoughts about this in general? I mean, ultimately he's going to come to the U.S., any assurances? We had John Kariaku on who made the point that any assurances that are basically made to the UK cannot necessarily be fulfilled, especially since, especially dealing with prisons and whether or not he will be kept in, um, in, 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 oh, what is it called? Um, 
Segregation. Right. Yeah, exactly. So from your standpoint, what is the defense thinking in regards to the case here in the United States? Meaning what case are they going to try to put on in the United States? And will that be different than the case they tried to put on in the UK for the extradition in and of itself? Well, unfortunately, in the United States, you can't really put on a case. You don't really get to, um, you know, present a, a, a defense <laughs> necessarily. You don't get to like the public interest defense. You don't get to kind of explain why you did the thing that you did. Um, so, uh, as John Kiriakou almost certainly pointed out, because he's been in that court system, the Eastern District of Virginia, um, you don't win there. You, you, there's no winning there. Um, so, uh, if Julian Assange is in fact extradited, it is a really bleak moment. Um, and so, uh, you know, there are other opportunities in the UK that they can potentially, uh, you know, appeal based on the uh, press freedom and free speech aspects of the case, which have thus far been ignored. It's mostly all of this has been based on his mental health. Um, so they haven't really discussed any of the press freedom uh, uh, issues of the case. So there are other avenues in which they can kind of try to appeal um, in the UK. I don't know if they're going to take those avenues. Um, it feels like it's very much just kind of kicking the can down the road. Um, and it feels like it's all leading to the same place anyways. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, it's it's a, I'm, it's a very, very depressing and dark day. Um, we all kind of knew it was coming, but it still kind of stings, um, you know, when, when when you hear it. It does sting when you hear it, to put it mildly. I'm curious, from the standpoint, has anyone heard anything from Assange or anyone in his family or his legal team today? Um, I have not heard anything uh, yet. Um, I will be talking to some people later on today. Obviously, they're very busy right now. I will say that um, uh, from everybody that I heard from, the journalists who were covering the case via video link, um, and also uh, Rebecca Vincent, who is from Reporters Without Borders, who was inside the courtroom uh, as a legal observer, um, they did say that he looks better. Um, as you may remember, in October, uh, we uh, th that was the last time he was seen on camera, um, and there was actually a picture leaked as well, and that ended up being the day that he had the mini stroke, and he looked uh, really terrible. I mean, sorry, Julian, but he looked really terrible. He looked very pale, very gaunt, very thin, very frail. Um, but from everything I've heard today from all of the journalists who were co who were covering it um, via video link or um, in the courtroom, also that he looks much better today than he did in October. So that's um, a slightly positive thing. Um, I'm hoping that um, you know, his health is in, in a better condition now than it was in October. I'm hoping he's getting the proper medical care. Um, but I will be talking to some family members um, and some friends later on today, and hopefully I'll be able to get... It certainly feels like the fix is has been in for Julian from the get-go. And, you know, over at RT America, we had followed his case from way back when he was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy to begin with. Um, he used to come on RT America back then. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, there was a relationship there. And so, you know, I've been, I was at RT for eight years. So I've watched all of this transpire. And, but you know, when the U.S. goes after these extraditions, you know, especially when it comes to the, the, U, the U.K., where they're basically a client state to the U.S. and they say yes to everything that the U.S. asks for. Um, the, the next scary step is, okay, we have to accept that he's coming here. I mean, I, I kind of had to swallow that pill years ago. Um, well, at least two years ago during COVID when he got put up in Belmarsh Prison. Uh, but knowing that he has to come here, the next scary thing is how do you secure that he's not going to be put into the hellhole that is solitary confinement? How do you, how does anybody secure you know, a, a promise from Australia that if he were to get convicted, that Julian could serve out his term, uh, his life, as, you know, effectively life term 
in his home country, at least, and not hold up in a U.S. supermax prison here. And there are so many loopholes to when you are convicted and put in jail or in prison here um, that all it takes, as John Kiriakou pointed out, is one person to say, oh, I heard there was a threat against Assange's life. And boom, let's put him in uh, solitary for his protection. How do, what's the next step there? I don't know, honestly, because you're absolutely correct. There um, have been these quote-unquote assurances from the United States government, which are uh, a joke. I mean, if we're being honest, let's, <laughs> I mean, this is the same country that was just recently revealed to have been plotting to murder him. Um, so any assurances that they've made for his safety is really just a farce. Um, so, I mean, yeah, you're right. He, all of the assurances that they've given, uh, there are loopholes in it. Uh, it can be as simple as he says something that they don't like. Um, and that can completely, they, they gave themselves, uh, kind of that back end, uh, deal where they can, uh, anything that he says that they decide that, he, you know, ju- uh, puts him in jeopardy or puts, you know, national security in jeopardy or anything. They can just make something up uh, and say that, you know, he needs to be put into special administrative measures, which is essentially hell on earth. It is uh, solitary confinement. Um, so I don't know how we secure his safety and his fair treatment when he is is, is brought here. Um, I don't know that that's possible. I think that's why this has been such um, a, a fight that we've been waging, trying to keep him, uh, trying to prevent him from being extradited to the United States. Um, and you know, we're losing, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's, it's a difficult thing for me to say. It's a difficult pill to swallow, but we're losing this fight. Um, and this is one we really can't afford to lose. This changes the face of journalism forever. Uh, and so this is, uh, I mean, we really just need more people. We need, I've, I've said this on your show so many times and I apologize for repeating myself, but it needs to be said. We need mass public pressure. That is the only thing that saves his life. That is the only thing that saves the future of press freedom. Like, do you think it really is just the Trump stuff that Democrats look at Assange as being responsible for the Trump-Russia stuff? Or do you think it goes deeper than that? Meaning, uh, yeah, explain that. Like, what did we miss? It's deep. It's deeper. Um, Jamal, there's been, I mean, as you know, there's been an over a decade-long smear campaign against this one guy. A lot of time, money, energy, and resources has been spent trying to destroy the character of this one human being. They've created a comic book villain out of him, um, and they've, they've hit him from every angle. So most demographics have some reason to dislike Julian Assange, and it's all garbage. None of it's true. Um, uh, you know, there may be kernels of truth hidden here and there so that they can kind of give it, you know, uh, some uh, veneer of legitimacy, but there is nothing to it. Um, and so, yes, he made, uh, you know, the right angry when he released the stuff about Iraq and Afghanistan. He's made the left angry when he released stuff about Hillary Clinton. Um, and so everybody has a reason to dislike him. Um, but what people need to realize is it's not about him. It's not about Julian Assange. I, I say it all the time. He could be the worst person on earth and I would still fight against what's happening to him uh, because it's bigger than him. It's it, This really is about the future of press freedom and free speech as we know it. Um, so I, re- I mean, it's, it's really difficult to get people to put their emotions aside. Um, but this decade long smear campaign has been unbelievably, unfortunately, unbelievably effective against him. Um, Missy, before we close, do you have anything that you want to kind of give a commentary on before we leave? Um, again, I just really, I just really want to encourage people to get involved however you can. Right now, as we mentioned, it is in the hands of UK Home Secretary Priti Patel. You can reach out to her via phone, via email, via Twitter, um, however you can. Um, I don't know that it will make a difference, but we do have to try. Um, so, you know, however you can get involved and however you can help. And, and really a big thing that we need just people to do is just educate yourself about the reality of this case and then help spread the word because there is a mainstream media blackout. They don't talk about it. When they do, they are greatly misinformed forming their viewership. 
Um, so we need people to help us get the word out um, and talk about what, what is actually happening to Julia, Julian Assange and the implications of it moving forward. Because I'll say it again, it's not about him. This is about the United States seeking global jurisdiction over information and journalism. And that should terrify all of us. Um, so, it, you know, put your feelings about Julian, aside, the, the, uh, Julian Assange aside. Um, it's not about him, the human being. Yes, his life is worth fighting for, but it is so much bigger than that. And we all have to uh, speak out against what's happening to him if we wish to maintain any semblance of uh, journalism moving forward. This notion that every country can be held by our laws, but none of the protections. I mean, because basically Julian Assange is an Australian citizen. And we're basically going after the guy saying he broke some law somewhere, you know, by the same token, he's not afforded oppressed protections. Explain the difficulty and the problem associated with that. Well, I mean, it's the United States wanting to have its cake and eat it, too. Again, as you mentioned, he's not an American citizen. He's never been an American citizen. He's never lived in the United States. WikiLeaks has never been an American publication. Um, so the United States is charging a foreign journalist under our Espionage Act, but affording him none of the protections of the First Amendment. And I don't know if there's anything crazier than that. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's very dangerous. It's a very I mean, I hate the term slippery slope. It's highly overused and extremely cliche, but it definitely applies here. This means that no journalist anywhere on planet Earth is safe now. Misty, thank you for joining us. I know it's short notice. And yeah, like I said, it's a very, very dark day. And it's one of those things where we knew it was coming up, but still it's something about it. It's like even if, you know, a needle stick is going to happen when it hits your skin, it's different. It's a tough um, one. Thank you. I appreciate this. The voice you guys were listening to is Misty Winston. She's a political activist, organizer, and co-host of both Facts on the Ground podcast and Free Assange Visuals. You can follow Misty on Twitter at Sarcasm Stardust and Facts on the Ground podcast on YouTube and Twitter at FOTG Podcast. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around to Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. So let's do this. I want to go into our next guest right off the bat, uh, Peter Kuznick. And I've been following this gentleman ever since. Professor extraordinaire. Professor extraordinaire. Ever since Untold History of the United States. I've mm -hmm. basically been paying attention to him. Loved Love that series like nobody's business. I've binge watched, including the precursors to those. Love it. Um, one of the things that basically got me interested in is history in general, just this kind of U.S. history and everything else going forward. So let's bring our guest in, Peter Kuznick. Peter Kuznick is professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. He and Oliver Stone co-authored the series in the book, Untold History of the United States. It is a must watch or must read. Um, Peter, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Uh, pretty good. Thank you. Excellent. So there were a few stories and topics that we wanted to get to. Um, one of those had to do with Cold War politics leading up to the Vietnam War. And some of that has to do with this idea of immediately after the Second World War, the architecture that was basically set up in regards to this kind of East and West 
and how that seems to be basically degrading at this point. I mean, right now, however people fall on the conflict, it does seem that the world order in the financial sense seems to be breaking down, which made me really interested in what was that world order immediately after the Second World War in the first place were to be broken down um, now. Meaning, what was the economic system set up immediately after the Second World War? Well, it was actually being set up during the war uh, when the Bretton Woods system was constructed. Uh, it, it, I guess when I look at it in terms of the Cold War and, and the strategy, I like to harken back to a, a memo that was written by George Kennan in 1948. Kennan is considered the architect of the Cold War. He was the brains behind containment policy. He later said that the militarization of what of his message was a big mistake, that he didn't intend it that way. But in his earlier years, up until about 1949, he was very hawkish. But he made an interesting comment. He said, we have about 50% of the world's wealth, but only 6.3% of the population. We cannot fail to be the object of envy and resentment. Our real task in the coming period is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity. To do so, we will have to dispense with all sentimentality and daydreamings. We should cease to talk about vague and unreal objectives such as human rights, the raising of the living standards, and democratization. We're going to have to deal in straight power concepts. The less we are then hampered by the idealistic slogans, the better. That's such an honest statement. It is so honest. That sounds like the Tillerson memo almost. I mean, it just lays it out clearly what the task ahead was to maintain this position of disparity. The U.S. was planning to be the hegemon, and the U.S. was planning to control much of the world's wealth. And we now live in a world in which the richest eight people have more wealth than the poorest four billion people. We live in a country in which the richest three people have more wealth than the bottom half of the population. And so this is in some ways the realization of Kennan's vision, which Kennan would later reject and retract and understand the insanity of the world he was helping create back in 1948 or 45 to 48. Uh, and, but we're living with that legacy. And this divide that was created, it, the, the Cold War itself should never have really happened. Had Roosevelt lived longer, or had Henry Wallace become president when Roosevelt died on April 12, 1945, instead of Harry Truman, we would have had a very, very different world. One of the things that Oliver and I argue in untold history is that if uh, Wallace had become president, there would have been no atomic bombings in World War II and probably no Cold War, certainly nothing resembling the cataclysmic divide that the world witnessed after World War II. And Wallace came so close, it's part of the history that is unknown, widely unknown, or forgotten, or erased. But Wallace was vice president from 41 to 45, was the second most popular man in America. And he had very radical ideas. When Henry Luce declared that 20th century is going to be the American century and the U.S. would dominate the world, Wallace responded as vice president and said, no, this must become the century of the common man. We need a worldwide people's revolution to end imperialism, end colonialism, end economic exploitation, spread the fruits of science and technology around the world, 
And Wallace acted on that basis. So on July 20th, 1944, the day the Democratic Party convention began in Chicago, Gallup released a poll asking potential voters who they wanted on the ticket as vice president. 2% said they wanted Harry Truman as vice president. 65% said they wanted Henry Wallace. But the party bosses, fearing Wallace's radicalism, decided that they were going to stage a coup and make sure that they got Truman on instead of Wallace. <laughs> but the first night, Wallace made the seconding speech for Roosevelt, and the place went wild in a spontaneous demonstration, led by, among others, Adlai Stevenson and Hubert Humphrey. And this went on for an hour. In the midst of that, Senator Claude Pepper from Florida realized if he could get to the microphone and get Wallace's name and nomination that night, it would defy the bosses, and Wallace would be back on the ticket as vice president. But the party bosses, led by Mayor Kelly of Chicago, saw what was happening, and they started screaming for Sam Jackson, who was chairing the session, to adjourn. So Jackson says, I have a motion to adjourn. All in favor say aye. Maybe 5% said aye. All opposed, nay. Everybody screams nay. He says, motion carried. Meeting adjourned. We'll meet again tomorrow. Pepper was literally five feet from the microphone. Had he gotten five more feet to the microphone, we would have had Wallace on April 12, 1945, instead of Truman, and we could have avoided so much of the catastrophe, the waste, the danger, uh, the insanity, the oppression of the Cold War. I mean, it, so, so even the, the Cold War itself was not in any way written into the cards in 1945. The U.S. and the Soviets had just ended the war in Europe and in Asia. Uh, we were <clears throat> allies. Uh, we had differences. But Roosevelt's last memo before he died to Churchill said these issues between us and the Soviets come up every day and they all work out. We should not make too big a deal of them. We should, be, we should plan to work together as friends and allies into the future. And, and that was the vision, uh, certainly something that Stalin wanted. He wanted it uh, because he, he wanted the friendship with and, and alliance with the West. Also, he wanted the economic aid that was promised. You, know, you have to realize when I talk to my students, they believe that the United States won the war in Europe. I At one time, I did an anonymous survey of college students. These are all A students in high school. And I asked them, how many Americans died in World War II? And the median answer I got was 90,000. So they're only 300,000 off, not that far. I asked them, how many Soviets died in World War II? The median answer I got was 100,000. They were only 27 million off. Right. Staggering. That's astounding. War II is about. They had no idea what the Cold War is about. They have no idea what Ukraine is about. And, and uh, so they, they, they think that the U.S. Won the, won the war in Europe, which is crazy. Throughout most of the war, the U.S. and the British were confronting 10 German divisions between us. Soviets were confronting more than 200 German divisions. That's why Churchill said it was the Soviets, the Red Army tore the guts out of the German war machine. But, you know, people don't know the history. And because you don't know the history, they don't understand what's happening now. And the history of the Cold War is so important to understand. That's why Oliver and I spent a lot of time focusing on this. Now, Professor, can we go back more, more recent history to last August uh, after 
the debacle that was the Afghanistan withdrawal. At that point, after 20 years in Afghanistan, the American population was obviously very war-weary, and we were just looking for an end and a way out. Probably not the way President Biden did it, but still, I think people were, you know, ultimately glad that it was it was over. We didn't get much time for reprieve before uh, the military incursion into Ukraine, but now suddenly it seems it seems it would appear at least according to the mainstream media, that the American public is all for war all of a sudden. All of a sudden, they are bloodthirsty and ready to take action. People are, you know, Malcolm Nance of MSNBC is there. What happened in the past eight months? I mean, we were war-weary eight months ago, and now suddenly we're angry and ready. Let's, Chris Coons talking about, let's send U.S. troops in with, you know, the risk of World War III on the table. Did we become bloodthirsty again? Well, there are some people who say that the USA stands for the United States of Amnesia. Uh, And I'm not sure if it's amnesia or it's just a very, very short attention span. What did Carter say, President Carter, that in the 200-plus years of our history, we've only had 16 years that the U.S. has been at peace? So this is in our DNA. And this is something that, uh, as Carter said, we're the most warlike nation in the history of the planet. And, you know, we've got people who profit from war. And we've got media that that loves to, if they don't have a disaster to deal with, then they're happy to have an invasion or a war to deal with. And you... Not only is the media owned often by these same defense contractors, but this is, you remember the lead up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the only person on the air who, on any of the major networks who was opposing the invasion was Phil Donahue. And the NBC executive said, everybody else is waving the flag. We can't let, let Donahue, you know, be a peacenik and ruin our reputation, and they fired him. They did something similar to Jesse Ventura. I mean, they basically bought out his contract, set him on the, um, set him on ice for those years. They learned a lesson, and you turn on CNN or MSNBC or Fox or any of the other networks, you know, and it's all this pro-war. Look who they've got on there. They've got the experts are from the military or their former military or they're from the intelligence community. And do you ever hear a dissenting voice? The lead-up to this invasion, was there any dissent? I mean, I get lucky. Um, I get to do mainstream media all over the world, and primetime mainstream media everywhere but the United States, my own country. Uh, I don't get invited on on those shows. I mean, very, very rarely. But everywhere else, I get to, you know, have an audience and get my airs viewed, and they're... My, my views aired and they're taken, at least they're considered. You know, I'm pushing, I'm, I do a lot on Chinese TV and Indian TV, and I'm urging Modi and Xi Jinping to act much more aggressively to intervene to end this uh, horror that show that's going on, because those are two people, especially Xi Jinping, who actually has some influence with Putin, uh, but uh, not, not in the United States. You don't hear any opinion at all. 
And Professor, on that note, on the the talk of Asia, the ASEAN summit is taking place next week. A lot of the Asian leaders will be here in Washington. Um, Right now, it would appear the Biden administration is a little perturbed by the Asian nations such as India, China, either, either not taking a strong enough stance against Russia or just flat out saying, hey, we're going to be neutral. We want to be friends with everybody. Don't force us to pick sides. Do you think the ASEAN summit next week um, is going to feel a lot of pressure from the, the Biden administration to pick sides? These countries have already been under a lot of pressure from the Biden administration to choose sides, and they're not doing it. I mean, they're refusing to do so. I would prefer if they weighed in much more heavily to try to end this before it gets even worse. I, th- I view it that as friends of Russia, they should be doing everything they can to end this war because it's, I think, a disaster for Russia, not just for the Ukrainian people, which is an obvious catastrophe for, but it's, I think also for Russia. Putin's standing in the world has been greatly diminished position has been desperately eroded. Russia's military, the respect from Russia's military has has declined sharply. Uh, I mean, I think that what what Putin was trying to achieve in terms of NATO expansion, he's actually uh, encouraged. Now NATO is stronger, more unified. Uh, Sweden and Finland are talking about joining uh, more more U.S. troops in in Europe now. Uh, This is, I think... A, a geopolitical disaster for Russia, and Russia's friends should help Putin understand that and end this. And this also from the standpoint of the global community. This could easily expand beyond the borders of Ukraine and could bring about World War III. So you mentioned Chris Coons, the stupidity of U.S. troops getting directly involved, but Zelensky was doing the same thing when he was calling for a no-fly zone. Yeah, basically petition to start the third world war. Um, look, I I understand your take on this. That's somewhat of a, of a Western framing of things. I mean, from the standpoint of the West, I, I wouldn't say Western framing. I would. I would. I mean, if, if you're going to say, for example, that the military isn't accomplishing their objectives, or that the standing of these groups have basically degraded in the West, yes, that's very true. That that's the case. But like you made the point before, many of these larger nations aren't necessarily getting on the U.S. bandwagon for this. I'm on with people from India, China, uh, all around the world all the time. They all believe that's the case. All the experts around the world see that to be the case. Um, and it, so it's not that it's a Western framing. I, what I think we're lacking is a planetary framing. I don't think we want to take a Russian view. I don't want to take an American view. I don't want to take a Chinese view. What's what's in the best interest of the people on this planet? What are the real objectives? What are the real interests that we share in common that we've got to begin addressing? And I mean, I think NATO expansion is a huge mistake, and I could understand why Russia feels threatened by what was going on in Ukraine. Uh, and I, I was calling for, for the, not only to, for Ukraine to uh, to say that it was going to reject NATO, which Zelensky was starting to do before the invasion, but that uh, it was just the this remilitarization 
of and division of the planet is in nobody's interest except for defense contractors and U.S. policymakers. That I agree with you on. I thousand percent agree with. You. Let me let me pose this question to both Jamaral to you and the professor. Now it's it's a it's a hypothetical that if is it really in the world's best interest to have peace and brotherly love all around the world, or is war not only part of human nature, but war specifically brought on by a single nation? In this case, we're, let's say the United States being the most warring country in in history. Is that in the benefit of these people in these United States because the world has only so many resources available, right? And what it boils down to is for your people, the Americans in this case, to thrive, is it, is it in our best interest to then be warring for our survival for the next 200 years, Professor? And no, and you look at the examples of Germany and Japan and how they thrived in the post-war period by not spending vast amounts on their militaries. Uh, No, military spending is a dead end. It's a waste. If the money that we spent on our military were used for things that people actually needed, the standard of living would be so much higher around the world. But but with my disagreement with Jamal from a minute ago, those of us who opposed and fought against the U.S. invasion of Vietnam, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the U.S. invasion of Libya, uh, have an equal responsibility to oppose the Russian invasion of Ukraine because there is no justification for that kind of military action anywhere. And the numbers who are being killed in Ukraine now pale in significance to what the United States did in its wars. This could get much, much worse. This is still potentially only the beginning. When Robert McNamara, uh, the architect of the Vietnam War, came into my class a few years ago, uh, he told my students that he accepts that 3.8 million Vietnamese died in the war. 3.8 million. That number is mind-boggling. And, 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 you know, so we think of, of Vietnam, we think of, we don't learn the lessons. Uh, and so, which part of the reason why much of the world is not going along with the U.S. sanctions and U.S. plans and uh, around the, uh, opposing Russia is because they see the hypocrisy. They say, well, Biden, who supported all of these wars, uh, now is speaking out and and saying that this is such a moral outrage. Well, it is a moral outrage to me, but these people have no standing to to take that position as if they're somehow morally superior. They're in the same boat with Putin, and I think that they're all – you know, should be as a special place in hell for all warmongers, whether they're Russian or American or anybody else. That I accept. That I definitely accept. Um, I'm curious, from your standpoint, you, like you said, you studied the Cold War for uh, God knows how long, and the untold history of the U.S. spent a lot of time on the issue of the Cold War. Are you concerned that whatever takes place after this, the new security architecture, once this, hopefully, sooner rather than later, um, is resolved and some deal and agreements are basically made, whatever that new security architecture is, that it's going to also be this kind of bifurcation of the world into a, I guess, a neo-Cold War. Any idea what that looks like? There are a lot of people in the United States 
who cry crocodile tears over the invasion and talk about the horrible things happening to the Ukrainian people who are victims, who really want to see this carried out as long as possible in order to weaken the Russians. There are many people whose goal is simply the reassertion of American hegemony. And uh, whether that, and that's in, uh, vis-a-vis Russia and vis-a-vis China, and see the world in that, in that way. And I know these people, and I argue with them. Uh, that's not the world we need. What we need now is to see ourselves as a planetary civilization, and that whose, whose common interests vastly override the things that separate us. I mean, there are a lot of things I don't like about what's going on in China, just like there are a lot of things I don't like what's going on in the United States. Uh, and and But th- that doesn't mean that I hate China or that I hate the United States or hate Russia. I mean, there, I, but, I, but I do hate decisions that leaders make in these countries. And right now we are unfortunately headed toward a greater division. The fact that India did not go along with the U.S. is monumentally significant. You know, and, and it's not just because more than 50% of Indian arms come from Russia, although that's a factor. I think people around the world are tired of this bifurcation and don't want to see a new Cold War with the same kind of dangerous divisions that we saw in the last Cold War. Professor, here's the difference, though, with the new Cold War, is that China was a weakened state back then. It was a nobody state back then. That's not the case anymore. That kid grew up, developed, and is also now a big bully on the block, too, if they want to be, right? So this is not the same situation as the Cold War of yesteryear. And now... China has not been involved in a war right. since 1979. So that doesn't mean, you know, maybe they've been quietly building up. They're very powerful. Yes. They've got the biggest Navy in the world now. They're going to be tripling their nuclear arsenal, apparently, by the end of the decade. I'm not happy about that. I'm not happy about that. There are nine nuclear powers now, all of which are modernizing their nuclear arsenals. The U.S. is going to be spending close to $2 trillion uh, over the next 20-plus years to modernize its nuclear arsenal. Britain is going to be increasing its nuclear arsenal by 40%. This is not the direction we need to go. That's another reason why I'm so critical of Putin for starting this war, because it's giving credibility and legitimacy to the warmongers everywhere. The militarists are the ones who are getting the most mileage out of this. The people who, the, the, the Putin bashers, were the, the ones who, uh, who now have gotten enhanced credibility as a result of this. Professor, but what about, what about in the last couple of minutes here, what about President Biden's pivot to the Pacific with the AUKUS pact happening, the ASEAN summit coming here, and and China and their provocative actions with Taiwan, with daily flyovers and what have you. In theory, if something pops off in Taiwan and the U.S. is forced to respond and the U.S. meanwhile is, you know, playing this proxy theater in Ukraine, can the U.S. really handle fires in the East and in Eastern Europe? Uh, Yeah, according to the U.S. defense planning guidance, Back in the early 1990s, which is the basis for U.S. policy 
the U.S. is planning for uh, two, two major wars at the same time on two different theaters. So the U.S. has that capability. We, are not, we have not yet sent troops, fortunately, into Ukraine. So we have our capabilities, but we have a position of strategic ambiguity when it comes to Taiwan. The Pentagon has run 18 war games uh, between the U.S. and China over Taiwan, and the Chinese have won all 18. So there might be some crazies in the U.S. who would be eager to take China on over Taiwan, but uh, the chances that the U.S. could succeed in that without World War III and nuclear war are very, very slim. Uh, so the United States has not said what it would do, and Xi Jinping has said this is a crucial part of his legacy, the unification of China, bringing Taiwan back into the fold. So there's a lot of provocative actions being taken by both sides over Taiwan. But your point about Biden and the Asia pivot, you know, he was in that administration when Hillary Clinton wrote her, her article in Foreign Policy magazine in November of 2011 calling for the Asia pivot. Biden has surrounded himself with top advisors from the Center for a New American Security. These, and you look at people in this cabinet, uh, it's not just uh, Blinken and Sullivan, but also Campbell, who's their guru over Asia policy, who are the brains, the architects behind that policy. So they clearly wanted to focus on China. They saw China as the big prize and the America's main antagonist. Uh, and Ukraine was not something that they envisioned. But now they're trying to take advantage of it. Peter, we're going to have to jump in because we're coming to the break. Um, but thank you for joining us. Um, definitely disagreements on some of that stuff. But still, I always enjoy you coming on. Peter Kuznick, professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. Check out Untold History of the United States with him and Oliver Stone. I want to thank all of you. Producer, engineer, Manila Chan. Everyone My name is there. Jamal Thomas. See you guys tomorrow. Have a great day. Bye, Rumblers. Fault Lines.